I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. You're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Repeticulture Network. tuned and dialed in and me and Jake had a whole thing with uh, Anthony Pierleone the other night on THP with this and trying to figure it out and spent like half the show like playing with knobs and trying to adjust things to get it where we had it before we started which was perfect and then I started right playing with settings and stuff and then I was like what happened yeah levels 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 my my mantra was when in doubt, noon it out. So put all the dials at like twelve o'clock and just <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, now that we're we're set up, we're good. We we sound and we video and snakes and stogies episode one hundred and five, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. I now don't have to point in the corner. Puget Sound Pythons. Check them out. Facebook. There they are, right there in the chat. Facebook, Instagram. YouTube. Uh, soon they're going to be putting out a another uh, a new yes show that is reptile yes, news yes, yes. radio. So they'll be talking about sort of current events. I'm sure within the hobby, but also in the scientific realm uh, and some other stuff. I think the first episode they're planning to drop next month sometime. So please be sure to check that out. Uh, Hell yeah! I'm stoked. I, it's gonna be great. Yeah. So, Puget Sound Pythons and then blackboxcages.com. Please check them out. Check out Puget Sound. Check out Blackbox. Awesome people all around. Blackbox is awesome. Couldn't be happier with my products from them. You can ask Jake. Jake will say the same thing. Five-star reviews across the board, you know, between Google and Facebook. So, they're doing something right. Check them out. You need a rack. You need a cage. They're the folks to talk to. 100%. And yes, shipping is expensive, but shipping is expensive for everybody. It doesn't matter who you buy from. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It ain't cheap anywhere. So before people go complaining about how expensive shipping is, doesn't matter if it's sea serpents, AP, whoever, shipping is a bitch. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about going in with friends and like, you know, hey, everybody needs a cage. You know, what I mean? yeah. you can never have enough cages in our hobby community. So if you've got two or three friends, go in on it together and share the freight, get a pallet, screw it, rock and roll. A lot of people already do it with mouse orders and stuff, feeder orders. So. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Make it worthwhile. Oh yeah. So. Hello, everyone. Hello. <clears throat> Someone on the show should have waited to drink my NyQuil. <laughs> Forgot this was on. Damn it, Colgan. <laughs> God damn it, Colgan. Every time. There's always one guy, right? Well, and Michael Gillen said, you know, it's never been cheap up here. And yeah, but, you know, the nice thing is, too, is if you're in like the Southeast, Black Box is fairly central to a lot of. A lot of people they're like in north georgia so for us it's like a four or five hour car ride it's not horrible but we wake up early enough get up there get back before dinner you know it's it makes for a very long day but 
I think next time we go up there, we may end up just staying up there overnight and then driving back the next morning. We don't know yet, but yeah, make like a little mini adventure. If you're inside of like the eight to six hours, you know, might as well just save yourself the, you know, whatever shipping cost is, which is a good bit. And, uh, you know, just go pick it up if you can. I think they'd rather prefer that too, because then they don't have to worry about FedEx or UPS jacking up their stuff and, oh, yeah. you know, doing whatever they do with boxes when no one's around. Yeah, going five states to the left only to go one state to the right. <laughs> so, oh, it's going an hour up the coast. Cool. Send it to Memphis, anyways. Oh, man. FedEx. I don't ask questions there, though. I'm like, you know what? Y'all got this. You got y'all got your system. Yeah. As much yeah. as it makes me laugh that it's like if something's literally going up to to like Charleston, it still goes out to Tennessee. Oh yeah. It's like okay. Yeah, there was a case of a, a, a individual in southern Florida who had a conditional species permit for a reticulated python and sold it to another license holder in Tampa. So realistically, it was about a four-hour drive from each other. Should have just says, met halfway. Should have just met halfway. And he shipped it, FedEx, and it went through Tennessee, and it got to its destination. And I guess at some point, Tennessee read the label on the box and inquired what it was and fish and wildlife slapped him with a fine for illegally exporting and importing a restricted animal into Florida. I think crazy. That's, that's kind of a cheap shot. Of course. hundred percent. That's a little, little messed up. Yeah. But, but it yeah. is interesting how everything goes through Tennessee. Yeah. Everything. Uh, so Rob Stone, possibly Billy Hunt. I don't know how Billy's, like where if Billy's able to do anything like so I don't know he may be joining us Robston is supposed to be um here shortly he's on the west coast and I'm sure he's up to his oh there he is oh there Bobby he is Kettle. buried up to his neck in snow because he's in the wilds of Colorado his face is so clean shaven I know it's kind of kind of freaking me out a little bit kind of want to touch it Just touch it <laughs> Especially since he's, he's frozen. He, look, it's so cold, he's already frozen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. <clears throat> Hello? Can you hear me? I can hear you guys. Hold on. Okay. Uh, very, I guess, briefly, what are... Phil isn't smoking anything tonight except for his cigarettes. Yeah. My, uh, it is 60 degrees here. It feels beautiful, but my sinuses are jacked up. I think there's probably some rain coming, so I'm not going to try and smoke a cigar. Womp. Womp, womp. What are you smoking tonight, though? I have one of the new Sin Compromiso Paladin de Saka from Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. We just got these in the other day, so they haven't had a ton of time to sit, but I'm going to smoke one and boldly go... Where few people have gone before. Yes. Excellent. So, um, yeah, pretty pumped about so, it. So these are like kind of a limited thing. I think he only allotted like ten boxes per store. We only got like five. I was uh, actually going to ask you that because they do like ten boxes per store, but how many stores are in that network? And like, do places like JR? I mean, we're talking like yeah. nationwide. Yeah, but I feel like someone like JR that has way more buying power than than you guys. I mean, let's just just being blunt about it. It depends. Do on they? Yeah. Do they thing. get twenty? You know. 
I'm sure it's it's not too different from you know your your industry of like of course the bigger shops are going to get more stuff. Sure. Um, some companies and cigar makers do try to to make a point of making sure the little guys get first dibs before they go and send out to the major buyers. It doesn't seem like that's a massive priority for a lot of them. Right. Um, right. And then you have some brands that they they sort of play favorites with other shops and they'll make a certain stick for that one shop and then everyone else can just kick rocks regardless of how much money you've spent with them, which Interesting. Like I know turns off a lot of lot of shop owners and it makes them less less inclined to buy your product because yeah. you kind of feel like you're second rate. Uh yeah. So I don't know, it kinda it kinda depends. It's it varies, but um We've been pretty lucky, though, with a lot of our stuff, you know, like the Andalusian Bulls from LFD. Like, we've been able to keep those in stock pretty regularly. Um, Opus X, we get in very infrequently, but we're trying to change that this year. And we're trying to, to go a little, you know, lean into Fuente stuff more. So hopefully we can get to that point to where we can have that. Good, um, good. Liga Bravada, we've carried for years. And that's something that really the only issues have been supply chain problems like everything else. So okay, it kind of depends. I mean, like every now and then you kind of get stiffed where you're told you'll be having something come in and, and they're like, Oh, we had to give it to somebody else. And it's like, cool. Yeah. And pandemic doesn't help, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. But on a lighter note and a more snake related note, someone got rat snake eggs. Oh, congratulations, Smitty. That's, Dude. that's so awesome. So I'll give you the, the quick story. Right. So I've had the Jansen and I together for a, probably a year, like cohabitated, like together for a year. Right. And I put a lay box in there because I was like, you know, in case she does lay, she has access to something like she's not just going to drop them randomly somewhere in the water right. bowl or wherever. Uh, and, you know, I was like, I've, I've I check it infrequently. Like I'm not checking it every other day. I'm not checking it usually really weekly honestly i'm checking it like every other week topping it off making it sure it's it's still got some humidity in it and still not dried out spag or anything like that and i haven't really seen them much lately and so i thought and i didn't see them much to begin with you know originally but <clears throat> i've noticed especially lately they've been extra secretive and so i was like okay that's a little different and so then i you know i walked in i kind of looked around and i was contemplating pulling them out and cleaning out the cage, you know, give them a nice deep clean. But I was like, you know, I'm not going to bother. And so I, I closed the cage back up and walked out the room and I was like, you know what? Something just feels something feels off. Something feels weird. I'm going to go check the egg box again and see if it needs to be topped off. And so yeah. I pulled it out and I started digging through it and I was like, there's nothing in here. Go figure, whatever. Kind of per the usual. And then I felt the egg. And the I, egg. I, like I about had a heart attack and <laughs> I dug a little more and there was, there's two more. So there was three eggs total. I pulled them out. I have no idea how long they had been in there. You know, it couldn't have been more than a couple days, a week or so um, since I had last sort of taken that out and, and dug around a little bit. And for whatever reason, the other day too, I happened to turn on my incubator and get it going for the, for the year. I was like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and, click this on make sure the fuse and everything's still good and got a egg box ready to go and put them in there and disco yeah so 
then of course I had to call up Jake cause I didn't have any feeders of like the appropriate size. Uh, cause we're still trying to build our, our freezer back up. Cause I, we had a, a little bit of a loss on the mouse front a couple of weeks ago. And so that kind of set us back, but I was like, dude, I need like any bigger size, anything you got, like <laughs> yeah, anything, as long as it's not like a rabbit with, which Jake doesn't have anyways, but so I ended up driving across town to meet up with him last night and grabbing something and made sure she got something, uh, something in her with a little extra calcium good uh, injected in there and get some more from from brats here at some point and really start to kind of pump her up again hell yeah man it's just like Owen was saying the other day like when something just feels off mm-hmm. you know so good couldn't, shit man. couldn't put my finger on it it was just one of those things where i was like you know this is just this is odd because usually i at least see some heads staring at me when i walk in the room or you know right. i see someone's tail as they're going into a hide because they've got like four hides in that cage and so I haven't really been seeing any of that lately and I've, I don't know. It was just, I was like, something just seems different, but that's, I guess that's part of sort of the reading your room and student of the servant thing, you know, like, like Rob and all the NPR guys talk about. And Oh yeah. Yeah, man. I almost I was about in tears, you know, it's like, first of all, it's a dream species to even have those to begin with, you know? And then I, I was, I figured eventually I would get eggs like if I waited it out long enough, something would happen. You know, I had, you can ask Rob. I had talked to him and Matt and said, like, what am I not doing? Like, what am I missing? Am I missing, you know, do I need to really like hammer them with food? Do I need to be uh, misting them like daily? Do I need to be doing this? Do I need to be doing that? And, you know, there, you know, Rob, uh, Matt mentioned, you know, offering UV, which I did. I added that to the cage when we went up to, to Janet black box last time I ended up grabbing a light and adding that to that cage. And, uh, I don't know if that made any serious difference or not. It's there. It's just a, a shade dweller from Arcadia. And um, I talked to to a few guys that have posted pictures of babies they've had hatch on Instagram and said, you know, did you guys do anything in, in, in particular? And everyone's like, no. Like, literally everyone was pretty much like, I had them together. It just kind of happened. There really was no sort of recipe or formula to it. So. I don't know, but at least they were honest, you know. Yeah. Like that's good. Like like I would much rather I respect some way more for being like, look, man, I wish I had I wish I knew what I did, but I just put them together and seasons changed and boom, we got babies. So like I, I really commend people that are honest like that. You know, and they, hey, if there was a recipe and you say, Hey, you know, I got a trick, I want to keep it up my sleeve, I respect that too. But so many people are like, well, you don't know because I did such and such. And it's like, no, you didn't. I know you didn't. You know, just be honest. <laughs> well, there's there's really not enough people that have bred the species for there to even be like trade secrets to begin with. Right. So, I, I don't like, think I've you don't even know how you got them. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't think I've ever seen a baby. I was just about to ask you guys, like, do they look different as babies or do they look like their adult coloration? No, they come out green. So they're lime green, just like any other. They look like oxies. That's babies. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Then they they mint and black out. Mm -hmm. That's so cool, man. So cool. Yeah. I mean, the eggs look look okay. They don't look. You candle them. I did. uh, I got one of those egg candlers for Christmas, actually, that I've been wanting. So I got to break in that bad boy. And I didn't see anything. Um, I also, I mean, it, it could also be too early to, for anything to really develop yet for me to even see anything. So I, I don't know. They're in the incubator though. They're going to go until they're clearly not good anymore, if that's the case. And like I told you guys, and I told, uh, 
crawdaddy you know even if they don't go the distance that like we're at least on the right track like that's a that's a pretty big step forward in the right direction so um yeah 100 percent, man that that's so fantastic <laughs> however it turns out but uh it's not uncommon especially on rat snake stuff to have it give it a week and then then recheck you know and if they still look the same then recheck them in a week later um especially those are long incubation relative to rat mm-hmm. snake stuff so even more the case of if there's if you see even a tiny blood spot and then check it a week later and then you got a network going and all that stuff that's very common. Mm-hmm. Well, thank God that we have Freight Freitas website ganysoma.org that has it's literally just a page that's dedicated to Jansen eye and oxycephalum and has everything broken down by category in terms of keeping them, breeding them, incubation, all that stuff. That's been a really really big resource and. I actually recently went through that website, copied all the articles, saved them into Google Docs in case that website ever disappears so that I still have all that information saved. That's a trick oh, I learned yeah. from Billy Hunt. Um, and I, I mean, right now the plan is to just incubate them the same way that I'm incubating the the cyani eggs. Um, 82 during the day, drop to 78 at night. Freight's website did say to keep them a little on the drier side. Like they don't seem to handle overexposure to water very well like they're for whatever reason they're extra spongy when it comes to that um i don't know what rob's experience has been like with with chance and i eggs and or i guess yeah so are they weird sort of striated eggs or are they uh, more like what you you're used to with the bears and st- did they feel strange compared to a bear's egg they felt softer and there were some stretch marks you know on on a couple of them so I wonder if they'll, yeah, if it'll kind of firm up as, you know, as you play them out. Because the, mm-hmm. they, the thing with Ghani eggs is that they, they tend to get, it actually becomes super interesting where people can't, like, they can't actually break out of the shell. They're sort of overcalcified, these really yeah. hard eggs. So it'll be interesting if along those striations they get real thick and tough. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, uh, I noticed that with the, the cyania, you know, the eggshells were just ridiculously thick. And all of the babies from the handful that I hatched, they all came out of the top of the egg. So like the, the, the head, you know, not like the middle of it where you would see with like a corn snake where they'd slit it and they'd come out the middle of the egg, literally like out the top. Uh, so if you like stood an egg up on end, they were coming out one of those ends. And from, from what I've heard as well, that seems to be a pretty common occurrence with Ganyasoma too. Um, at least true Ganyos. I don't know about, about rhinos, but, Maybe that's just the the weaker point, and that's the the best option for them. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just the weak point on them. So you'll see it sometimes in rhinos. You know, I've had them, especially they love to lay the packets sort of like this, but even even mm-hmm. more stacked. And you know, I have a. I think the first clutch that Tom and I had gotten was very much that way, where they were kind of all poking out through the very ends of the eggs, like you're talking about. I'd have to look at the Ghani hatching pictures to see if they did the same but i think it is a strategic weakness because i lost i mean i yeah i lost a handful of cyania because they just didn't get out of the egg they were you know full term and everything but for whatever reason you know maybe they lose that egg tooth or something prematurely and they just they can't get out but compared to other colubrid eggs that i've i've dealt with they were just ridiculously thick oddly the beauty snakes tend to be the same way where they'll have, you know, they can run into really thick eggshells and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, 
Yeah, rhinos, I, I've never never seen it in that same way, but the, the Ghani eggs just have this different uh, feel and texture that's similar to beauty snakes, but not uh, anything else, really. Yeah, was it, uh, was it Panshop telling us that um, on some of the coleonic species, you can't give them as much calcium as you as you want to or as you would do a normal terrestrial gecko because the eggs will just be so calcified that they're just impervious they're not getting out of them that happened to toby brock who's down in uh, i think actually where chris is at in corpus right so yeah. that uh, i think their buddies are buddies from back in the day and i remember toby was trying to give excess calcium to his females and he wound up with these beauty snakes that like couldn't hatch out of the eggs mm-hmm and I looked at those pictures, zoomed in on my phone, like, meticulously. And you can see, like, you know when some of the eggs get thin and it almost, it almost looks like a fungus where it gets a little funky, but it's not. It's just a discoloration. Mm-hmm. I, I always get annoyed with the sphag because I feel like that can be misleading. You know what I mean? And it's not that there's a funkiness to it. It's just that the sphag left some color there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I really I'm, – I'm, I'm – I don't, I think those eggs look good, man. I mean, I don't know what they're supposed to look like, but to me, they like, they have the right shape. They're not, you know, they're not dimpled too early. Yeah. They don't look horrible by any means. They they don't look, uh, water. That unexposed one, the one that's, you know, to the right in that image of two looks really good. Um, so that's one that I would particularly watch. And the other just has the spag covering, you know, so I can't really say, but that open one, that looks pretty good to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do they have obviously they're the elongated, but do they have more of like a a, a nipple to the end of it? You know what I'm talking about? Not Some that I noticed. I know okay. what you're what you mean. But yeah, I, I didn't notice that with okay. these, but I also didn't spend a ton of time playing with them. It was kind of like a get them in the damn egg box and get them in the incubator and leave them alone. So yeah, yeah. Well, but you got to uh, keep us posted, man. I do wonder, like with the thicker shells for the cyania and and these you know if that is a a product of uh, like a high humid environment if they're like that just for the extra protection um like maybe they do just need to be a little drier because the ambient humidity of wherever they're at is is naturally higher than a lot of places i don't know if there's anything to that or rob what your thoughts are because i know like they do get some cooler weather like i know uh Maliri's he had videos of him finding cyania at nights when it was in like the fifties. So it does get chilly there, I guess, at certain times of the year. But I, I just wonder if they're they're naturally laid in drier locations and that thicker shell sort of helps stabilize and, and have some sort of stasis to them. I also always figured that a lot of those like jungle type snakes, the a lot of that stuff is, is laid on surface or close to surface where you have more inverts and you have more bugs crawling around and, you know, everything loves eggs, you know? So I just imagine that a lot of those thicker shells is more of a, I don't want to say defense, but, you know, if things are going to eat a thinner membrane, at least you have some extra layerage to defend mm-hmm. against bugs and whatnot, you know, or mold or any kind of fungus. I can't remember who was telling me somebody had a, a, a particular chameleon that has an abnormally thick shell. I don't remember what species it was. Mm-hmm. And they had a, a full perfect clutch and they got mold. Every egg got mold. 
and it was like well do you spray chlorhex on them to, to kill the mold do you wipe the the little spores or little little you know toadstools off if you will tough and action like, yeah it was like no we just left them alone and they got black and they got shriveled and they looked like they were rotten and they left them alone and they hatched out flawless so i don't know i mean from an evolutionary basis you have to think like if they're super if they're that delicate species is screwed man like they have to be able to tolerate some form of of abuse you know some level of it i just i've wondered if if the drier for whatever reason if these sort of semi-tropical species or tropical species if that's what you want to call them um lay in drier areas just because they are in sort of a wetter part of the world for the most part could be very well could be but I'm excited. Didn't think it would happen anytime soon. So we'll see if they go the distance. Incubation is where what separates the men from the boys on these, apparently, from from what I've read. Yeah, I'm still amazed at how often you check your incubator. And like, I'm I'm not trying to jinx you, but like, I couldn't open my incubator nearly as much as you do because of humidity and everything. I don't that- though. I have a glass door. So I just shine a light right through the front of it and I have them in those clear Sistema boxes. Yeah. So I don't have to open anything. Like I did that. Okay. That was, that was by design. I was, this is it's like, this is perfect. I don't have to open it. I can just shine my light. Boom. Yeah. Good to go. Okay. You know. That makes sense. I just have many, many friends that check it and open it and check it, open it and check it, open it and check it and mold, you know? So that's good, man. Smart. Yeah, so hopefully, I'm. A, I mean, there's a, there's a good chance I'm sure that more will be in the pipeline for later in the year or something. But I'm not gonna gonna count all my chickens, all my gents and I before they hatch. Uh, but I did give her a little extra boost in calcium. So I, I'm, Rob, I'm curious what you, Matt. That was sort of at, at Matt's suggestion because he, he made it sound like with Ganyos, not necessarily like true Ganyos. When I say Ganyosoma, I'm not talking about rhino rats. Like exclude those, put those to the side. Not not the same. Um, with those, you know, I, I've attempted to feed mine quail eggs before and they've had no interest in them. You know, I offered some the other day, actually took a cracked one because I fed the Aki some scrambled quail egg as well. And so I took some of the the albumin that was sort of running out of the crack shells and put it on the, the fresh eggs to see if maybe they that would entice them a little bit. And I got nothing. So I'm, I can't help but think that they're, they're probably eating a pretty high, high bird diet naturally, given how arboreal they, they like to be. Um, do you think that that helps as far as calcium intake naturally? Cause I like to, I like to supplement. I just, I, I get, <laughs> I worry about over overdoing it. <clears throat> yeah, based on those eggs that you had, I wouldn't be worried about overdoing it. They look pretty. They look really good. We'll see how they thicken up as it goes. But yeah, I wouldn't be worried about that. Uh, you know, at this point. So I think you're totally right to to give it a shot. I think you're just doing a great job keeping them. That's really what it speaks to. You know, and they are something. Certainly, seeing it at Denver. You know, in terms of the black black chance and I, they would just. Mm-hmm led to the entirety of the captive, you know, certainly the captive hatch population or captive born population of those of that form. Like 
they those animals it was a single pair of wild caught adults that had come in and then must have given you know 15 clutches over the span of four or five years and it just it took half of them to figure out okay how can we hatch these things well and and all that stuff and then those became the founder stock but um no i think you're doing awesome man and it just speaks to their species it's adapted you know you're doing really well with those animals and I think you're going to get, you know, however these go, I think you're going to get some more and you're not wrong to try and, you know, do the best you can in terms of all those natural impulses to feed up that female and see what she's going to do. I think that's totally right. The, uh, I was going to say of the babies, is it, are they more rat snakey? in terms of getting them to feed or are they more like rhino-y where you gotta, you may have to try some stuff and kind of play it by ear. They're usually pretty easy to start actually that, you know, they're decently sized babies, um, both on the oxys and the Jansenai and stuff. So I, yeah, actually it's easier. I don't think they have that fish design in their head, fish or tadpole design in their head. So yeah, you're just going to want to, maybe it's even go back to a, sorry, go back to a chick fluff or something like that. But, uh, yeah pretty standard stuff should shouldn't be too bad when when you get to that point which you definitely will hell yeah yeah i was telling i was showing jen those pictures yesterday too at black box because i i do feel like you know the, the xt4 that i have them in did sort of have a hand in it because it holds temps really well it holds humidity really well i had it completely decked out you know with the there's multiple hides in there i pack it full of foliage like with those i i aimed for as much visual barriers as possible, like as much coverage and then to just not mess with them. You know, like yeah. I really don't take those out and play with them when they, when I walk in the room, they disappear. I'm like, cool, whatever. Like they're not a great snake. If you're, if you're wanting something, you'll be able to look at cause it's like the Velociraptor cage in Jurassic park. You're just seeing a bunch of plants and Move. they have a live pothos in there and stuff too. But you know, you got the led, the RHP, the UV, and I think just that combination of, of all those things and just leaving them alone definitely helped. But, I mean, the other thing, too, someone asked about uh, any difference in their food intake. It was Mike Kosicki. Um, I really haven't even been feeding them that much. Like, I've, I've – it's been very infrequent for them. So I haven't been doing anything in terms of up and food offered, you know, even if it's smaller stuff uh, more regularly or anything like that. Like, I, I haven't been doing anything, but um, – you know, do you think I, you you un, you subconsciously cycle feeded them, cycle cycle fed them? Excuse me. Maybe, I mean, there was a period a couple months ago where I mean, in the timeline of things, you know, eggs would have. That's when then things would have happened. Um, where yeah, because I had smaller adult mice, like I would feed them a little more regularly, and I'd feed them you know multiples just because they are bigger. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to take too much credit for it. Yeah. Pretty much just even be and wait and. But. Yeah. It's good, man. It's good. I, I think that that you saying how you've been feeding them a little less and just monitoring it, and again, you're giving them the best prey items that you can because you're the one actually producing the prey. I I always cut back feeding just because I'm afraid of obesity and, and let's be real in winter I'm lazy you know I, I never cool stuff because a lot of my stuff is not I don't have really any montane stuff I actually have my first pair of pyros this is my first quote-unquote montane animals I've ever really kept and uh 
and I'm, we'll talk more about that later because I have some cooling questions for, for Babo. But, uh, but I just think that come November, December, whatever it is, just slowly cutting back because they know it's happening regardless. Yeah. You know what I mean? It can't hurt as long as the animal's completely healthy. It can't hurt. So I think that maybe just having the lighting options that you have, the having the black box cage that has space to put stuff like how many times we have cages that we know is an appropriate size cage for the animal or appropriate size enclosure for the animal but it's really not because you're limited as to how much stuff you could put in there while it's with that oh, one black box space you got, efficiency yes yeah, space making exactly. the most out of all the empty space right. between the floor and the ceiling yeah. they, they have multiple hides there's multiple cork tubes in there there's a big like plastic abs hide or whatever you know the, the black ones that reptile basic cells yeah um I have those $5 fern bundles that me and Jake love so much from Walmart. Walmart I've got ferns. like four of those in there. I've got a big pothos growing in a pot in there, which I need to check because she may have even laid some in there at some point. I don't know. Um, I really don't. I, I kind of neglect that pothos, but it does great. Um, but then they have, like I put in that humid hide slash lay box because like I said, in case something did happen, I wanted her to have a place where she could go. And sure. I can tell even without going in there, like I can tell someone, one of the two is in and out of that thing all the time because I can see the spag is all mixed up and, and moved around and stuff. So, I mean, it definitely gets used. Uh, and then I keep that covered up with one of those ferns as well. So there's a visual barrier so that they know that that's a, you know, at least a safe spot for them to be able to go and, and yeah. hang out so yeah but i just think between the lights the decor and caging and the feeding the 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 easing up on the feeding that i mean shit man that could be your recipe right there it really could you know so hell yeah yeah it's uh i it was something else that i read on the ganyasoma.org site was uh it seems like daily misting seemed to to help it was noted that that seemed to really ramp up reproduction with, with Jance and I in particular. Um, is that a seasonal, like, it rains every day at 4 o'clock kind of thing? Or is it just uh, adding dew and humidity in the morning kind of thing? I'd imagine probably a little bit of both, but probably more so the, the rainy season sort of replication sort of deal. Yeah, is the rainy season in our winter or no? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at um Sulawesi and and you know Indonesia and stuff like that so okay they're on the other side of the opposite opposite side of the globe yeah but it is still northern hemisphere so yeah. I don't know but I, that's funny you were you mentioned that as far as cutting back everything because I was in the room I think yesterday and I was just looking around I'm like why do I feed all of you during the winter <laughs> right what, like aside from that baby rack i was like why am i feeding like why am i worried about not having enough feeders right now to cover everybody it's like you guys don't need it yeah i just pulled all the corns and beards out of cooling no one lost a gram of weight i almost feel like that that madera canyon beards gained weight during cooling because he looked healthier than he did when i put him yeah. in yeah so i i was just like Next year, you know, all the condors and stuff, they get fed so sparingly anyways. I'm like, I could totally just cut y'all off come winter, you know, unless you're breeding or something. Or not even cut it off, just cut back. Yeah. Like, all right, so I'll be honest. I haven't fed the venomous room in, well, it's since, I think, the first week in December. And, like, everything's fine. In fact, I have the one of my female ranks. She is, like, 
plump. And I don't know if that's just her. She's def- definitively changed color for the season, like darkened up real, real dark. And I don't know if it's an, a funky ovulation or if she just has a massive poop that she's got to let out or what, but she hasn't eaten in at least three weeks and she's thick. Now it's been far too long since I had her with a male. So I'm, I'm not, I don't think anything's brewing in that capacity, but it's very optimistic for the coming months. I'll tell you that. So I actually started doing the whole winter thing when I had black throat monitors like a decade ago. And I was like, man, why am I feeding these things all the time? They don't eat. They just hide. Like it's, it's Christmas. They're just, hiding under a log like i put the food in there and they leave it and that's when i started looking more into all this winter cutting back Mm -hmm. tis the season kind of thing and it just makes sense man you know henry says parts of suluasi are southern hemisphere uh which leads me a great segue henry thank you uh something that the three of us were talking about on the group chat of just because it's in a tropical zone on the other side of the planet doesn't mean it doesn't share a parallel on the map. And Babo, you royally fucked me up with that website you sent me <laughs> because, dude, I've just been living on that website. Just like, what is the annual rainfall in Djibouti right now? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the thing is, right, this is why I always talk about it in the context of the cosmic octopus, where there's so many different competing factors. And honestly, we don't have the brain power, the capacity to understand all this stuff that's going on. We don't. So you can try and take in as many factors as you can and then bear that in mind. And, oh, I'm accounting for these handful of things. And I know Eric, you know, and then we've expanded to y'all to, to have this series of switches. And we view it as humidity, barometric pressure, you know, the associated barometric pressure, temperature, feeding, uh, light cycles, all this different stuff. And if we recognize, these are the switches that we recognize and we try and say, okay, I'm trying to uh, manipulate these half dozen to a dozen, whatever it is, switches and see what happens. And then go from there, right? And it's, oh, I'm trying to hit all these things. And maybe for things that we consider to be easy to breed, either there's only a few switches that need to be triggered, but maybe it's critical ones, right? If if we're talking, uh, you know, high, uh, or I should say far away from the equator species in Europe or North America or, or vice versa, and, you know, in South Africa, that maybe it's probably going to be temperature and light, or those two things are probably going to be what's, what's coming into play. So maybe it's only two switches, but it has to be these two switches. And those do align then with, you know, a food cycling as well, because they don't have the, uh, the temperatures that would allow them to thermoregulate that meal in their stomach. So they don't, they're not eating. So all these things kind of go together in a sequence and that's always the case. But, uh, and that probably times up with barometric pressure shifts that probably have an impact on the amount of relative humidity that's in the situation. The question really is whether we need to mimic those conditions or if you can hammer those switches. Right. And there are probably some of them you can hammer and others that you can't. So temperature, you probably can't really hammer that. They probably have a an intrinsic range that they can survive. And that might mean when they're brumating or just in or in their up condition. It could be one or the other. Right. But in terms of light cycling, that's and that was the context we were talking about it. Right. So if we're talking about if you're trying to breed Darwin carpets that are near the equator or in my case, Solomon Island tree boas that are not 
that are very close as you know one of the if you look up Honiara there Solomon Island tree bows are not in Honiara there are Paulsoni there but uh, the the Australis are from a little bit they're further down in the in the island chain um, but you look at that effectively it's it's not 12 12 even right on the equator if we're saying oh it's 1150 to 1210 and 1210 to 1150 well it's still not 12 12 there's a there is a cycle there and on something like Honiara it's more like 1130 to 1230 and 1230 to 1130 across the year between the high and low points well, what happens if you run those at 15.9 to 9.15? Well, they they definitely perceive the difference. I mean, you see it in their activity in terms of when they're out. And it's just, I think you're really hammering that button. And while you might not be able to hammer the button in terms of temperature by saying, oh, this is something that sees lows in the 60s, I'm going to toss them in some snow and see what happens, right? That could be That could be really deleterious. That could be really dangerous for them. In terms of the light, I, I don't know. I think you're just really making clear that that change is happening do we and you're just back into this well are we replicating stuff or are we trying to highlight the differentiation and that's really kind of the question happy to jump into all that stuff because again i i think it's naive on our part if we if we think we understand all the inputs that are going into the system i think that's fundamentally wrong that it's uh, totally, you know, totally impetuous on our part to say, oh, I understand all this stuff. No, I definitely don't. And and when we see websites like the the time and date or the lunar calendar, all this stuff, these are all different inputs. And it, the more we can come to appreciate that all those inputs might have some impact on what we're doing, I think that's really, really the conversation we need to be having. Yeah, so completely. And it's I, I think that those the websites that you showed us and we can send links to people who, who want to just dm us or whatever but basically you're looking at lunar phase you're looking at uh cloud coverage you're looking at temperature highs and lows barometric pressure all that crap but again those are choice weather stations at choice cities or towns or outposts or research stations so like i have luxor in my phone because of all the egypt stuff that i have because i figure even though i know for a fact the crate flew out of cairo it doesn't mean those animals came from Cairo. You know what I mean? So I figured if I go down the Nile just a little bit, it's going to give me a little better outskirts reading. But at the same time, there could be no snakes in downtown Luxor. They could be 50, 100 miles east or west. And I and the temperature is completely different. I mean, crap, if I'm in, I'm in Boca Raton right now and it's 60 degrees, it's always a guaranteed 10 degree drop if I go in the Everglades. So if I go out there right now, it's going to be 50. I know it is. Maybe 51, whatever. But it, I imagine it would be very, very similar in other parts of the world where it might be hotter or colder. And then take elevation into it, you know, below sea level, above sea level, you know. It, all those play a factor. And I think that a lot of times we don't even think about that. We don't even realize it. 100%. I mean, that's why we – it's the same thing, right? Even when we're finding these inputs – that's why we can't speak in definitives on this stuff. We just have to say, okay, what are the inputs we have? Recognize yeah. that there are inputs that are happening that we're not appreciating. You know, the things that we do, we even, you're back into the, the known and unknown Punnett square, right? We have known knowns, you know, known unknowns, unknown knowns, things <laughs> that, you know, we know exist, but we don't know what they are. And then we have unknown unknowns, which is always the best phone calls to get, right? Oh, did you account for that? What are you even talking about? I had no idea to even consider that that was a thing. 
we need yeah. to appreciate all these things within within those, that square, you know, those four squares of possibility and say, OK, for most for the most part, we have uh, even when we are in the square of known knowns that we don't have the certainty, the level of certainty associated with it that we would like to think that we do. So that, yeah, and that's that's totally it, is that the weather station, um, and even if you look at it stuff, if we get super locale specific, like our gray band stuff, well, guess what? There ain't a weather station on three miles west of Sanderson. You know, we've been there. We know that. There, there isn't one There's sitting nothing. there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> cow, cow fields. <laughs> Oh man. Well that then, was that was like what we got into, you know, what two weeks ago when we were talking about all this stuff initially. You know, it was it seems like the constant question for me is like what is the minimum? Like why is it that that there's people that say you don't have to cool bears down? There's some people that say you do and both have have success. Like what's sort of the determining factor there? And like I think it's everything we just talked about, you know, like if you take like all right my one of my favorite questions to ask people that that fancy geography is do you think a mercator map is upside down because it, it very well may be you know what i mean the hell's a mercator map the the traditional map that we all know and love where north america south america is on the left and the rest of the world is on the right and the pacific ocean is barely shown on the map and antarctica is this gigantic white strip across the bottom of the map right that's your traditional mercator map what if it's upside down right because we're so used to seeing north is up and south is down well we could speak in definitives like that but it's outer space. You know what I mean? Like there is no up and down. I mean, if the earth is flat, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, too, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we know the earth isn't flat because you can't properly express proportionality on a flat surface. Right. Exactly. We and, know that. And they have lasers to prove it. <laughs> Curvature of the earth. So anyway, um, but just going back to that whole splitting the map up, right? So if we take our, our Mercator map and we cut it into slices to make it fit correctly, right? I think Madrid is literally the same exact line of curvature as Denver. And it's like completely different climates, completely different elevation. You know what I mean? But it is the same line on the map in theory to, to one degree or another. Someone's going to prove me wrong. It's fine. But we don't take those things into consideration. And then what really messes us up, <clears throat> excuse me, is captive born from line breeding or straight up wild caught are you changing the seasons and is the snake or lizard or turtle or whatever confused to all hell? Oh, a hundred percent. And I know, you know, from, I haven't been there in just, well, yeah, just under 20 years, but uh, the interesting bit of, you know, being in Bishkek, Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan, you know, Kyrgyzia is that uh, it's 12 time zones away and it's, yeah. Essentially, it's essentially, again, to your point, essentially at the same latitude as Denver, right? And so you're literally halfway around the world. That's sort of the conceptualization of it, is that you just go halfway around, same latitude. And you know what? The weather conditions, particularly at altitude, very similar. It's just that the whole place is ringed by 14ers instead of, you know, so you're sitting in this bowl at elevation instead of being in a situation, oh, it's just this one side. But the functional conditions and in terms of the, the feel of it is, is you know, very similar. Whereas, you know, so there's a feel at elevation to 60 degrees, right? 60 degrees in a, a certain 
um, sure. which then will often imply relative humidity. If you go to Florida, right, and I'm sitting there at 60 degrees, it feels a heck of a lot colder than it does here. We, you know, if you're sitting at 15% ambient humidity versus 60 or 65 yep. or 70%, that feels yeah. very different. You know, you probably don't see nearly as many people uh, wearing shorts at 55 or, four, you know, 45 degrees in, uh, in Florida as you do in Denver, right? Because that yep. feels the whole feel on your body is very dramatically different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody takes into consideration the amount of humidity in the air to make it feel and perceived that much colder, you know? Well, even on the opposite side of that with the heat, you know, haven't like when we went to Texas and I was like triple digits, I was like, this feels fine compared to back home where the air is like a literal soup, literally breathing in soup. Yeah. You, you know, I was like, this isn't that bad. You know, I I actually preferred that drier heat over the the humidity because it's just, it's like, yeah, it's freaking hot, but at least I could breathe. Yeah. And I think like when we were out West, just the crosswind, just because you have such wide open spaces, even though we were in valleys, we were on plateaus, we were in bowls, whatever you want to call them, uh, you, know, you still had open spaces to carry that air. Mm-hmm. While as in the Southeast, you have open areas, but everything is two or three stories, right? If it's a cypress tree, if it's a longleaf pine, if it's a you know apartment building, everything is about two to three stories, maybe four stories ballpark, and you don't get that massive that that airflow. You you just don't you know unless you're in on the on a lake or in the glades or whatever where everything is you know eye level. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean down here if you're in like the swampier areas and it's you know m- middle of summer. It's freaking rough, man. Like yeah. the the gnats and stuff, they no airflow isn't there to stop them. They get all up in your eyes and stuff. I remember herping as a kid and you know trying to bag a small copperhead, and it's like the gnats and stuff are just in my eye, like literally just swarming. And it's it sucked. Like I've never never experienced anything else like it anywhere else. But if you're deep in the woods and you're in that swampy area where there's just stagnant water and the heat and stuff, it's 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 the freaking green inferno, man. It's it's crazy. So on that note, it goes back to what what Rob was just saying of how do I rewind this real quick? So we talk about the Jansen I, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have captive bred animals that have produced for a couple different, you know, generations, what have you. Do you do you try and emulate the natural seasonality or do you just make it okay it's winter in the united states so it's going to be winter for them or rainy season for them and then you look at me we're like i have animals that have only been in the country for six seven months they've literally is the first time leaving africa so do i just extend their summer and wait till the next winter and try and force a reset or do i try and keep it going the way it is that that's the real question yeah i mean i think the answer in terms of um, pragmatically speaking, right? The answer is to to just force the reset. Unless it's something where they're conditioned and they want to be paired immediate, like they're ready to go and it'll override your kind of current, con- their, their sure, impetus sure. to go is going to override what they're doing. Oh, I think yeah. you just have to reset them and ride it out. That's really, really the thing. I, I was listening to the carpets and coffee that is that have been put out, right? And there was a discussion of this and I, 
you know, listening to it on a podcast, not watching the YouTube commentary or whatever, but taking, taking the conversation based on what Lucas and Eric were talking about. I had someone had put in the commentary talking about barometric pressure, right? And the key point that, that wasn't brought up there that, that I was thinking as I heard it and presumably was the intent of the person who put in the comment is saying essentially, well, how are you going to manipulate the barometric pressure, assuming that what you're doing doesn't align with what's naturally happening outside? You know, the conversation turned to, well, unless you have them in a pressure chamber, right, that being inside the house doesn't change what's happening in terms of the pressure outside. Well, the key point then becomes to align those factors, right, rather than being a mimic question or saying, I need to try and manipulate what's happening. And actually, we've thought about that, right, in terms of with frogs, different amphibian species and saying, hey, if, actually, if we put these things in these, uh, you know, server boxes, could we actually manipulate the pressure in there in the same way that you could with that? Could you could you try and do something that isn't replicating or isn't going within the flow of what you're doing here? I think the answer is, in theory, yes, it's, it's probably in practicality pretty difficult and might have uh, negative uh, consequences, right? If you do that wrong, if you mispressurize something that could yeah. have very serious consequences. But the key would be, as long as you're dropping your temperatures in alignment with what's happening in the conditions, then that, sh- that barometric pressure change is going to be happening at the same time. If you're trying to do gourmet rodent and you have, you know, four different rooms of corn snakes that you're doing in four different ways, maybe again, the natural conditions, it, it actually can time up with what's happening outside. But if you have some, if you only have this one collection, then you're probably going to want to time those up with what's actually happening outside. So as long as your temp drops coincide with the temperature dropping outside, then you're going to have those pressure changes. And then when you get weather events, it's really going to happen. And it'll be, co- you know, coincidental with those things. It'll, it'll coincide. But um, trying to do it absent, you know, or divorced from those conditions, that's when you're going to get that misalignment. It could be a problem. And you'll be sitting there saying, oh, okay, I dropped the temperatures, but I didn't have that pressure change because I was doing it when that wasn't happening outside. Yeah. Yeah. Henry and I have talked about actually trying to emulate a change in barometric pressure, not even so much to get a a definitive percentage drop or or increase, but just to try and alter the room in one way or another to try and spark some kind of intrigue in in, in mating snakes. And we basically were talking about how you'd have to use some kind of fan system that you'd also have to still pump in a temperature control as well as a humidity control because you're essentially making an in one way out the other. And then every time you went into the room, you'd have to have some kind of pressure chamber to equalize what you just entered into. Right. So you're not disturbing the pressure of the room. So incredibly difficult, but it still is great to think of different ways to try and think outside that box. You know what I mean? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, in the realm of theoretically possible, for sure in the realm of you know practical yeah, i think pra- the practical. certainly the more practical aspect is to to try and write them out to your room both in terms of the hemispheric seasonality and in yeah. terms of um you know aligning what you're doing with what's you know mimicking what's happening in your conditions uh, i think that's really the key and sure. again but you're you're totally I, I i love you know what you're talking about with henry in terms of Hey, let's just force a change and see what happens. Because I do think all this stuff, uh, these animals are so perceptive to change that 
just a change well, how will they react to this change there are certainly things like well changing it by throwing snow in the cage probably won't go yeah. that well you know or putting ice you know putting ice cubes into this cage so that you're literally freezing them out not in the not in the case of kind of down regulating when you don't have an ac or something something like that right but it literally trying to push them beyond the boundaries we're to me we're right back in that conversation of saying well they're definitely perceptive to movement in these in the switches what happens if we fully throttle this switch in a way that they're unlikely to have seen uh, ever before right it reminds me frankly of the I don't know if y'all listen to Radio Lab, right? But the one from a week or two ago was talking about the worst year in human history, right? Making an argument for, well, what's the worst year in human history? And I think the the argument was that it was 573 AD when the, these these volcanic eruptions happened and and caused the essentially blocked the sun for a year, and people survived and lived through it but there was mass famine and all these disease you know famine and disease because again cosmic octopus everything's interrelated all these different changes so those things certainly happen you know what what would happen in terms of the triggers and switches and all these different things which usually isn't nearly so dramatic but uh we do have aberrational events and obviously we're happening those are happening even more frequently than ever but uh, a lot of this stuff right is is going to be a question of switches and even in nature, sometimes those are fully throttled in a way that we don't appreciate or try to mimic. Yeah, completely. I'm actually just looking up. Uh, so ZoomEd just came out with, I mean, maybe it's been out for a while. It's news to me, but they came out with a chiller that is basically, it's basically redneck air conditioning. You know what I mean? You, you have a, a insulated vessel that has water. There is a, some kind of coil device in there, and then it's it's quote unquote chilling it, and then it has a hose to pump that atmospheric into your enclosure. And to my knowledge, just by looking at it on my own, it looks like let's say someone has a reptile room and the room is an ambient of 80, and they want to keep some kind of amphibian that doesn't do so well in that high of a temp. Maybe you want to chill it down 10 degrees or so. You put this on top of it, it's like a it's like a, a separate hood, you know. And it doesn't have much water. I mean, the water, that, the reservoir that's in there probably would last you a few hours, if that. But when they tested it at my local pet shop, they're like, yeah, we only got it to go down five degrees. But, you know, the, the, the toads are happy. They're having fun with it, whatever. That could be the, even that five degrees. Let's say you added ice cubes to it. Let's say you ran two of them. Let's say you did it every single night for 30 days, but only at night. Things like that, I think, could could really just tip that little. I don't want to say tip the scale, but you know, make the scale wiggle. You know what I mean? I think that's also going to depend a lot on the species in particular. You're sure. Talking about because you know, getting the like, I don't have to cool the corns nearly as much as I do, you know, the Chinese alafe and stuff. Right. Right. To get action from them, you know. There's yeah. Certain, again, I'm not talking about cooling that. stuff down. I'm talking about <clears throat> doing some kind of you know environmental change to try and ignite something or spark something up you mm-hmm. know what i mean and, definitely um, i mean I, and we're you know this brings us literally back to two weeks ago that prompt you know when i was getting the chance to listen through it that i was you know firing off messages to you guys saying hey what about this what about this because it really it, it was out of the corn snake it doesn't need to be dark right where t- that was literally the conversation is like okay well if you have south carolina 
corn snakes, right? What what is the annual change in light cycle between the you know midsummer and midwinter, and what's the effect of that versus a New Jersey corn snake? And then that's again naturally we're into well, what's the temperature variation? Are they is a South Carolina corn snake going to be more amenable to being particularly if we're talking wild caught or F1s, right? That's really the context of the conversation. Are they, is that going to be more amenable to breeding in a diamond pipe, you know, the new style diamond python thing, right? Where they have access to heat, essentially they're up, but they get nighttime lows. You presumably are offering reduced lighting. Maybe if you're doing UV, you're really cutting back on, on that exposure. We get into the Australia point, right? This, that I bring up where it's, uh, just so much closer to the sun that what it's, you know, the incidence of skin cancer in Australia is what, two out of three, something like that. So um, that's not the case here, you know, in the United States where we're literally not as close to the big hot thing. Uh, there's it, cosmic octopus, man, so many different interrelated factors, all these different things. And you say, okay, well, you know, that was the, the conversation, but what happens with the South Carolina corn snake if you do pop it into the both the light exposure and the temperature that you would do on the uh, New Jersey corn snake that you would anticipate for an, you know, an F and I know you, you can't keep New Jersey corns or whatever, but the, just for the sake of the conversation, not saying people have those, or, right. you know, that's how we're engaging this yeah, is well, go, go the reverse, uh, you know, uh, a, a rosy corn from the keys opposed to an Okatee, like legit straight sure. up wild caught. It, it It's polar opposites. Just, They've kind of switched sides on who's colder. You know what I mean? Yeah, a hundred percent. And you would look at that and say, okay, well, um, again, I would I would argue that e- essentially nothing, right? And this takes us back to the point that you made of, well, where the where's our weather station versus where was this collected versus what's the population? Are they exactly from the same cut? And what does that mean versus being two miles away versus five miles away versus ten miles away? Well, if if you're ten miles away. There probably is, even if it's only a minute over the course of the year, going to be some variance between those two animals, right? Does that matter? Does it not? Is, does it matter if it's the male? Does it matter if it's the female? It's all these things have some impact. And I think it's, we tend to oversimplify them because it's too hard to contextualize. And then again, if, we're, if the objective, that at least what we're setting out is to mimic, it's impossible. You can't do it. Right. And so obviously there, there has to be some point where we say, well, we're doing the best that we can. And then it's just, are we maximizing those things or are we trying to mimic them? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And then no one says that you can't maximize by mimicking and vice versa. Mimicking may maximize, you know? Um, sure. Like- I mean, especially on stuff like you were pulling all those South Africa, you know, the South Africa day length things. That's that's going to be getting towards maximization, right? The the tip, you know, right around the tip there. That's going to be about in terms of habitable snakes, other than Australia stuff, or you know, take it the other way, diones that are in far northern Russia, right? Yeah. Those things they're going to be at extremes, and so in that instance, mimicking is going to be the extreme. But if you have something that's along the equator, it's probably something that the mimic would be very minimal. But it, as long as the body form can sustain it, you can you can really be highlighting the variation that you get there. Yeah, and I, I don't know I don't know if it was you or 
someone else we were just talking to basically saying how the individual localities in relation to phenotype that may be separated from physical barriers may experience, like you said, the corn snake gets 60 seconds, right? 60 seconds of light difference between, you know, a thousand miles, right? But it could be more simply because of a natural barrier. So like you look at like the, the Drakensberg in like South Africa, where the mountains are high at just the right angle. So if you've got, you know, snake A is on the east side and it gets, you know, 12 hours of light and snake B, same species, same phenotype, same everything is on the other side of the mountain. It gets two hours less because the mountain shading it or whatever that plays a that plays a factor to some degree. You know, a thousand percent. And this this, you know, again, (laughs) I love it because that that's the whole point. It's too complex. There's too much. There's no way we have to do the best that we can. We can try and account for these things. But that's exactly right. Right. We get into rain shadows. You could have some things that exist on both sides of a given mountain right different species where they they actually do they're capable of existing on both those despite the fact the conditions are so different on one side versus the other but that's a huge difference even on something that they could be just a few miles right the same species that exist on both sides of a given ridge could have a dramatically different annual precip that they're exposed to yeah 100 percent. you know and those you're saying oh well i caught it you know this one three miles from that one but those three miles could be hugely impactful. Hugely impactful. And that, like, one of the f- ones I remember from a long time ago is I was taking some class in college. I don't remember. I didn't do well in college. But there was a whole thing about prairie rattlers and prairie rattlers that, you know, we, we know that mountain ranges are a dividing force that make deserts, right? It basically stops precipitation from traveling one way or another. So, Prairie rattlers on one side, on the on the west side of the Rockies, are the same exact species as the right side of the, or the east side of the Rockies, right? But because the ones on the east side of the Rockies have so much more humidity, have so much more rainfall, have so much more everything, they live completely different lives. Their seasons are very, very different. Their breeding habits are very, very different. Their their food intake is very, very different. So it makes you wonder is just because you got a prairie rattler, it doesn't mean that you're, quote unquote, taking care of it correctly. Because unless you know exactly what the lineage is and where the animal, the host animal, the host parents, whatever you want to call them, were field collected, you can't gauge, you know, does it need 60% humidity or does it need 40%? And does that even make a difference, the 20 to 20%, you know? Well, and that's where we're back into defining success, right? And how we there was a reptile fight club on this point, right. And saying, I guess the, it's where I would be. I'm always leery of absolutes, right. Whenever anyone, and I highlight this in the content, whenever anyone says, Oh, no one keeps or no one cares about, or no one works with X, you're wrong. Whatever it is. I, I don't care. Whatever it is, you're not correct. When, you, whenever you, you say no one, 84 degrees Fahrenheit. Exactly. Yeah. You're wrong, right? If we're so, if the obsession is with mimicry, and we say, okay, we need to recreate. Well, fundamentally, you're to your point from earlier, Phil, right? Wrapping in all because all of this is related. All of it is together. Where we say, right, the the carpets and coffee of saying, well, are the barometric pressure changes happening when you're 
putting these inducements on them. Well, that becomes, are they doing your seasonality? Well, if you are, then that's probably not reflective of something that's a Southern hemispheric critter, particularly a wild caught in its first season. You know, all this, all these different things that goes together and saying, well, we shouldn't, it's probably a fool's errand to define success relative to mimicry because I promise don't speak in absolutes. Well, I promise that we're not mimicking a hundred percent of the factors that the externalities that are, that are playing uh, onto those animals in the wild. Yeah. We're not reflecting them in the same time frame, in the same seasonality that are happening here to so their, their fullest percent. I, I promise that's not the case, but we know <laughs> then that that's not necessary to successfully keep them. Right. Whatever, whatever boundary you define it that as, right? As, and that takes us to the fight club of, well, is multi-generational captive breeding, does that represent success, right? The, uh, them exceeding the anticipated or known, where known longevity of wild, wild stock, is that success? What constitutes, constitutes success? And that's a whole different question. But uh, certainly we know that you don't have to do all those things to if we take the take the view of okay multi you know longevity combined with multi-generational reproduction or at least you know where that's um, being facilitated right in terms of eggs and maybe people aren't hatching them they're not keeping them to to then do whatever right there there can be a bunch of different arguments as to what that that threshold should be but either way we're we're seeing those things if yeah. you know if they're living longer than than anticipated and uh, want to reproduce and, and go into that step, I think that's at least, we can recognize that's one argument for success. Sure. You can, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl per se. Yeah. Sure, 100%. <laughs> uh, Bill Bradley says that we need Dr. Loafman to get a grad student to collect east and west locality prairies and then keep them in the opposite manner and then record the results. There you go. Well, the funny thing you bring up the prairie thing, right? Is yeah. when anytime anyone brings up the viridis complex, the mm -hmm. naturally you want to jump to a discussion of all the different venom stuff, right? Oh, the yeah. different venom properties they have across their range, and that has to be reflecting something, right? Why, sure. whether that's just a, a question of isolation and and development, or it's reflecting prey preference, or it's reflecting something else entirely. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, you did bring up, you know, in the context of bringing up prairies, that that's something that naturally sure. jumps to mind is saying, OK, we see we see differentiation there in a way that sometimes you can perceive it. Right. Sometimes those actually have a phenotype to them, too. Right. right. The right. Green Mountain, Colorado rattlesnakes have a uh, humorously a greenish cast. They have a particular sure. look compared yeah. to stuff that's even further east from there. And that's on the same side of the slope, the, something that's an hour drive. They have a profoundly different appearance. They have a notable yeah. appearance. Yeah. Like what, what is that reflecting? What, why does it look like? Well, it probably reflects their ability to camouflage in this area. And there's a natural selection towards that look, that phenotype, but is there anything else? Well, maybe we see it in this venom. They ostensibly they're eating the same prey and the same exposure, same exposure, but there must be something that we're failing to perceive to substantiate this happening. Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to, uh, we had Brent Schultz on a while back and he was talking about viridis babies 
Viridus Neos having a more potent venom on a on a on a spreadsheet level, if you will. And it's not because of the whole babies are more potent thing. It's because these babies are more potent on paper with a completely different compound, completely different enzymes, the whole shebang than adults. And then they prove it out to, to monitor that specimen all the way through adulthood and watch that venom change. And then at the same time, have the same thing happen with different phenotypes of veritas. Like that's a whole thing, like you were saying. You know, now we're not even talking about different localities of adults. We're talking about different localities of juvenile to adult, from neo to juvenile, and vice versa. Yeah, this. Yeah, that's such a beautiful, you know, beautiful point relative to the complexity of the whole thing. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. it's so complicated. I get why that's unsatisfying, right? To say it's complicated, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is. is. But it's also it's fascinating. It makes you want to learn as much as you can, especially like if you're if you're a prairie rattler guy or gal. And you just the Viridus complex is just your mo. That 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 has to be so much cooler than something else that doesn't have that, or that we know of doesn't have that. Well, that's it, just there, there, isn't it? That, yeah, that's that, that the ticket of. right there. Yeah, <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. Oh, I love it, man. That's awesome. I'm that's so glad you came on. <laughs> what I talked about on THP the other night was, you know, the the more stuff I read about and the you know talk to people about different species, the more you realize ontogenetic habits or you know phenotypes and changes and stuff are so much more common than than just like green trees and emerald tree boas and yeah stuff like that. Oh yeah, and just to touch base for a second, uh, I didn't know that keeping turtles in racks was taboo. I know guys and gals that have kept multiple aquatic, terrestrial, arboreal turtles, whatever you want. I know a lot of people that kept turtles in racks, and it at oftentimes it's a lot more work, especially if you're dealing with water, because mm -hmm. a lot of times you don't use filtration. But I was that was very cool listening to him talk about you know how taboo I guess it is or whatever. So, well, it's a it's a rack to start, so that's yeah, like, ex exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. So Bill Bradley says, has anyone studied venom differences with captive bred animals as opposed to wild caught animals like KRZ with their production of animals as a uniform, non-natural diet affecting venom protein production? I think people have on certain species. Um, but as far as I know, I don't think they've ever noticed a, uh, a watering down, if you will, in potency of, or something to that extent. So I don't know. We'll have to check. It seems like something Nate would would know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, anytime we talk about venom, right? I know this is the important bit is that we're talking about well, what's what's it intended to go into, and then what are we measuring against? And right. usually, the stuff right that looks really bad to people is this right? Isn't it the the contextualization that stuff that's intending to put it into uh, fish and amphibians? is the stuff right. that reacts really, really badly when put into a mammal. You know, so we're measuring that all of, it, all of it again comes back to how we're measuring and what we're measuring against. And so you look at something and say, wow, this seems to have inland typins, right? That it's like, oh, this has a crazy overkill against mammals. They're not eating mammals naturally, right? Mm -hmm. I, I believe yeah. that to be the case. And so most of the stuff that shows is super, super hot. 
is well they're they're naturally putting it into something else where it's react where it reacts differently and doesn't have doesn't actually if that was your ld ld50 measure right into a you know a, a pertinent squamate it actually wouldn't have that same it wouldn't show as that same dose right the the effect that it needs to to have it's just that well we're we're the wrong target. We in the mammal context are the wrong target and just happens to bind really badly and go really poorly for us. If they happen to put it in. Yeah. 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 That actually goes to something that I I looked at before of. So certain vipers that are lower in the, I don't want to say toxicity level, but like you look like night adders. So night adders predominantly have a very cytotoxic venom. 90, I think it's like 92% of their diet is amphibians. So you look at the cell structure of an amphibian, and even though we are 70% water, the cell structure is way different in a frog than it is in a, in a mouse or a human, right? So these, these cytotoxic properties, they're designed to destroy amphibians and digest them. It works so much better. And yeah, the human's way bigger than the frog. But again, if you take a, a mouse that's the same size as the frog and you inject both, the frog dies like that. It just eh, dead starts to digest. The mouse is like, oh my God, this hurts. What the hell just happened? And that goes to like the opposite of what you're saying is, you know, we're still using the same scale, but yeah. it, it's, it's showing it, it's showing it wrong, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. Same it's all Boyga. a question of perception, right? To the, yeah, the brown and old. Right, the the relative risk is entirely different between these different things. Something that could be super hot to a mammal might not, you know, might not have that same impact. Again, just speaking to complexity and trying to have humility on all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and even even still going even further in, just because it has an adverse reaction to primates, doesn't mean that a canine is going to have an equal reaction. You know what I mean? Oh, 100 percent. Right. There's a reason dogs are man's best friend. Right. Is because their operating temperature is different from ours. So we don't where you're seeing COVID in cats, you don't see COVID in dogs. Right. Because their baseline operating temperature is different. So we don't have the same relative risk of of crossover events in in dogs. That's why that's why dog, you know, it's difference between dogs and cats. Right. Is the ability to have crossover events is entirely different just based on the fundamental physiology. Yeah, dude, rabies in raccoons opposed to rabies in possums, which is damn near non-existent because of, like you said, temperature. So, hundred percent. What do you got, Schmitty? Redirect us. We, I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing we're pretty far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> it's good though. It's good. I was, no, trying I was reading to read the. Bill. Yeah, Henry said venom is the same in terms of the you know what Bill asked previously. Uh, and then Bill said, it's impressive to me that it would be the same breaking down a uniform diet to create the proteins and enzymes necessary for venom. Even when the diet we're feeding isn't necessarily their norm, you make venom for amphibians or fish out of the components of lab mice. No. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, it would be one of those things where it'd have to be KRZ or M toxins to, to really, have enough hands-on time with that kind of stuff to notice yeah any sort of real difference yeah yeah and even still is is just to go back to like what we're talking about like you're the quote-unquote ld50 
I love the LD50. I think it's amazing. I love reading it. I love looking at it. It gives a, what's the word I'm looking for? It allows. Tiny, tiny window. Well, you know, it, it gives you a comprehension of the capabilities, right? And especially for, for a layman like myself, it gives me an idea of what I'm looking at so that I can make decisions or inform myself as to, you know, what's hotter or what does what, you know, and then the fact that they break it down through, you know, intramusculatory, intravenous, subcutaneous, whatever it may be, that in itself is completely fucking different. So <laughs> that even gives its own thing to look at. Um, but you get somebody like Nate, who, like you said, you know, is literally doing this day in and day out and can notice differences on a molecular level in a lab, right? Are these animals that are inbred, is it changing their, their composition of their venom? Or is line breeding changing the composition of the venom? Or the simple fact that something that is a opportunistic feeder in the wild, but is only being fed lab rats in the venom production lab, is that altering toxicity levels in some regard? So, I would think uh, that it would take a ridiculously long time for you to really notice any any major difference, though. Yeah, but you look at you know someone. I mean, dare I say, like you know. Who would be a good person to look at? I mean, look at look at Terry. Terry's been breeding monocle cobras for what 20, 30 years now. I imagine that a lot of that's lime bred to a certain extent. You know, if we had the technology back then that we do now, when we started sampling that and sampling it, and sampling it, and sampling it over and over and over again, would you see a reasonably noticeable or or any kind of dynamic change? Who knows? We'd have to you'd have to take the time to do it, which. Lord knows humans don't have. So, yeah, I think there's something there. I just don't know that it's something that you would notice in a, you know, at least in a lifetime, in my opinion. It seems like it would be something that would take a very, very long time. Cause you're looking at something that's also been in place and in design for, you know, millions of years. Yeah. But you're also talking about something that is environmentally affected via human. Like, you know, look at a, 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 uh, Graminia, not is it Graminia? Um, the why can't I speak about this? Yeah, the Abronia, Abronia Graminia, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. you know, like when you said Graminia, I thought that uh, what is it that that cryptolytrops or that Pariahs? Oh, no, 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 Abronia, Abronia. So you look at Abronia Graminia, and when they pluck them out of the wild, they're neon green. And then we get these stellar, crazy-looking baby blue, powder blue, captive stuff. Well, that's because we're doing something, whatever it may be. Could be doing UV. something or not doing something. Yeah, right. or, or, yeah. exactly, or not right. Exactly. So, yes, I agree with you, Smitty. That it could, it would take a very long time. Let's say a lifetime to really do that correctly. But that doesn't mean it has to take a lifetime. It could yeah, be. I'm, I'm yeah. talking about in the context of like, you know, you're two generations in. You had snakes that were crappy eaters, and you've somehow managed to to breed that out. Okay. Yeah, I see. I see the point. Like, that. it's not going to happen as quick as as that. I would think. Yeah, but but no, but we're talking about like venom composition, for example. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you look at animals that it's it's difficult to gauge, but. You have a, a rattlesnake that's fed a live rat on day one, right? 
And then the next feeding, it's fed a live rat. And the next feeding, it's fed a live rat. And the next feeding, it's thrown a frozen thaw or a fresh killed rat. And now you continue to, to basically trick it and train it and work it to take the frozen thawed, right? Eventually, in theory, there would come a time when that rattlesnake puts out no venom because it knows it doesn't have to. So even if it strikes it, bites it, the fangs go in, the whole shebang, the, the whole you know workings of it, how much venom was put in? Was any venom put in? And then is it altering the venom in terms of a time frame, right? Does it know, okay, if I put in X amount of venom to digest X amount size prey, well, I know that I don't have to put that much venom anymore. I only need this much venom, or it thinks it does. How long before it doesn't put any venom at all, and then its offspring start doing the same thing? Right. Fills down the epigenetics in yeah. a world. Uh, <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, if yeah. I mean, like chondros, I've never had a chondro gently take a mouse. They don't care if it's alive or dead. They're going to grab it and wrap it as if it is alive hold on to it for an hour and then maybe decide to eat it. You know, so I, the, it also breaks it down again to the species to species. True. Basis. Very true. Yeah. I just think of, I've had a lot of rattlesnakes, man. They just, they get to a point where they're just like, feed me. Yeah. They just gently. sit there. Thank you, you just put it there and it just comes over and just, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Down that fucking rabbit hole. Thanks, Bob. I'm not saying you're wrong. That's I think why, it's, that's it's complicated here because we just when we want to when we want to dive deep. Oh, I know, dude. I got my goggles and snorkel and everything. Shit, get your submarine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> How did we start down this hole? I, I, I don't know. Oh, jeez. So, Rob, what's new with you, man? How's your season going? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So the funny bit on that is that, uh, so I have a story about uh, northern Mexican pine snakes, Depi, Depi, that, you know, so I'd gotten these. Talk dirty to me, Rock. Yeah, right. The um, I'd gotten them right kind of on the back, you know, the back of the front of the COVID. So maybe April, 2020, something like that, that, uh, and these are aged animals that I gotten from Tim Gebhardt. And, uh, my conception of them was that, you know, people were keeping them in a way that they would pair them and then, or they would hard roommate them and then put them together and see what happened. And so I, I had gotten them, you know, post that season. I don't think I'd even put them together in 2020, but then I had brewmate, hard brewmated them in the, you know, low 50s in uh, last season. Paired them up maybe for, you know, I'd had them, well, hard cooled them for 90 days and put them together uh, and nothing happened, you know. And I just maintained them together without issue, but without producing anything. And going into this season, I just thought, well, that didn't seem to really do anything and sort of the way they're being responsive, the whole room light cycles, I'm going to feed cycle them. I'm going to stop feeding them before Halloween, leave them off, um, you know, and just sort of see what happens. And, and I was doing that. And um, the only occasional, you know, occasionally the, the female would in particular, the female would pop her head out of the cork tube and say, Hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Um, but but not in, in sort of a midsummer way for sure. Um, and then 
a little more than a week ago, I happened to walk in in the middle of the day and uh, came to quite a commotion of the, you know, the two, the male actively breeding the female. And when they do that, it's, it's very notable. So right, it's a, this is the beginning of January. This would be maybe a, a, a third of the way to 40% of the way to through the hard cooling that I would talk about from the year before. But this, in this case, we're talking about sort of keeping them in the new school diamond python way. And yeah. I wasn't expecting it at all, but they were all over the place. Everything was all over the place. It's definitely super notable. And then it was over. And in the same way that, and they, I haven't done it again to my seeing, you know, in that time frame. So that would be super easy to miss. It, I just happened to be, and we see that a lot, particularly with things that are maintained together, right? Where like people say, I, I know Dr. J has presented that and said, oh, I don't, uh, you know, the, the things he would keep together, he would never notice calculation on them because yeah. presumably they're doing it when he wasn't around. And certainly in this case, they even noted that I was there, you know, I was seeing some responsivity to that. So I was I'm tucking out of the way to, to keep from being a distraction, right. Sure. As this is going on. And it actually, so I see all this stuff and it just totally blew my mind. I wasn't sort of going into this. I wasn't uh, the focus in terms of taking this approach for this season was not, oh, I definitely want to produce these. It was eh, based on what I'm seeing. I think maybe this will be a way to approach it. We'll see how it plays out. I'm you know, not, uh, not too worried about it either way. And then to, to have this observation at a time that I wouldn't have expected it, I guess the only thing we had had a couple snowstorms come through, I'd sprayed them a little bit as, as I usually do when, when we have that happen, when it snows, I'll usually give a light mist you know, and, and just sort of see it. And I don't know if it just so happened to line up with that again, barometric pressure changes, then with me putting a little water on them, whatever it is, um, or into the enclosure, boosting that ambient humidity from 20% to, you know, 50%, at least for the 45 minutes it takes to, to try out yeah, and go back yeah. to the same way it was, um, whatever, whatever the situation, but it prompted me to reach out, reach out to, uh, all of our collective buddy, Chris P and because I knew he, from talking to, when he had been talking to you guys that he had uh, Jani, which were the other uh, northern Mexican pine, I reached out to him and said, hey, I, I don't I didn't remember if he had small ones or big ones or if he'd paired them up or whatever. And I said, hey, what'd you do? And he, you know, he wound up confirming that essentially that's the new protocol associated with these things. So I guess in some ways I'm impressed that they did so well with the hard cool. Well, and all of this then prompted me to do what I probably should have done, save again, when we talk about factors of success, right? So if I'm looking at things saying, well, I'm judging my success with these particular animals relative to how they're doing for me, I'm doing this thing. They're giving me these, this feedback and that's causing me to change what I'm doing. Obviously there's, something i'm taking in um yeah. but it, it prompted me to uh only retroactively this line is associated with los membres durango um mexico to look at the weather the annual weather cycle on average in los membres durango and the answer is that effectively it's across the scope of the year it goes from highs of the 70s down well so highs in the 70s to highs in the low six highs in the upper 70s to highs in the upper or lower 60s i should say across the course of the year and the real thing that changes beyond you know that 20 degree swing is we see the same 20 degree swing in the nighttime low so they go from being in the 
upper 50s basically when it's at its warmest so it gets very cold at night even in right. Los Membres which again is that where they're really from or was that where they were shipped yeah. from maybe they were from 10 yeah. miles away 10 miles you know <clears throat> away that was also a thousand feet up who the heck knows right who we don't have any insight into that but what if we take it take it on on its face then we'll say oh, okay this is the weather that's happening there that even when it's super super quote super warm which again we're going to have uh, essentially open basking which is what i see on these things so that it's if you have an ambient of say 78 or 79 but they're sitting in direct sunlight that direct sunlight is probably going to be a, 100 degrees and then they move off into the shade where it's we know you know, again when we talk about daytime highs we're talking about shade yeah. temperature so they go from getting some access to direct sun that's maybe sitting at 100 or 110 and then they'll go sit at 78 but that nighttime lows, even in the warmest part of the year, is going to drop to the upper 50s. And then at the coldest time of the year, when that daytime high is going to be in the, uh, you know, in the lower 60s, right? But again, they can still probably, you know, get some sunlight basking into either the 90s or 100 or whatever and pop back down. That nighttime low is going to the mid or upper 30s. Um, and so I looked at it and said, well, heck, well, that seems like exactly then what I'm doing right now. So that's, that's super funny that just the intuition yeah. of looking at them and seeing what they're doing. Oh, actually this happens to fall. These, these should be kept like we now keep diamond pythons. And if you look at the weather in Sydney, right, that again, you get into cloud cover issues, how much sun exposure is there, what's this, all these different things. You would say that the, the conditions, if you looked at Los Membres versus Sydney, that actually, if anything, you would say, wow, it's a lot nicer to be in Los Membres than it is in Sydney. So if we can breed diamond pythons the way that we do, how the heck did these things take 90 days of hard cool when they're, you know, where this, this lineage of animals comes from is more attuned to something that's, that's more uh, temperate relative to our, you know, relative to variance, not relative to, to overall, you know, the overall paradigm, paradigm of temperate. Um, how did they survive that? How'd they do this? Because this is the thing that they should be doing all along. And so Crispy, yeah. you know, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, dude, the, you know, people with Depay, Depay and Depay Jana, this is the new thing. You know, we all do them like this. No worries. He'd reached out to, uh, you know, he's, he's talking to folks and all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, well, the, there you go. A hundred percent. I had, and I don't know. It's certainly not a question of, oh, me being, you know, a genius or something, because obviously I just sort of taken it on faith. This is what we're doing. This is what sure. I run with. But the responsivity to what the critters are showing you led me to do this. And it turns out, oh, yeah, that's what everyone's doing now. So, so you're telling me a Mexican species and you don't keep it at 100 degrees Fahrenheit all year round? It's Mexico, right? <laughs> right. A hundred percent. Well, what's yeah. crazy is because because I love Jani. Uh I'm, I don't keep pits. It's not my thing, but dude, Jen and I are just awesome. And and the double D's are great too, man. Don't get me wrong. But I was going to ask, like I've picked Chris's brain a bunch about the Jen I, and I know he's told me about doing the chilling and, and pairing and visually watching copulation and everything else. But on the double D's, do you think it is a going back to their, their cohab? So, they're probably copulating when I'm not looking, which is a lot of the time. I may be asleep, whatever. Do you think it's more similar to blue tongue skinks where it's a very, very small window of opportunity for both male and female? And if you missed it, you missed it. And if the animals missed it, 
they missed it. Do you think it's the same concept in that regard or no? I don't know. It's super. It, I sort of feel like relative to last year, I just don't have enough of a sample, right? So coming out of a hard cool, I don't yeah. think they would have done it the same way in terms of that hard cool. It's just a question of, are you maintaining them this way in this paradigm or the other paradigm? Right. And then maybe I think I, I don't remember if I had waited for a shed or if I just put them together or whatever, you know, how yeah. that had gone. Certainly I have the records on that, but I don't have it in front of me. But to me, it's, I, I think there's, there's certainly, well, a couple of things. You're just trying to open the second, uh, second box, right? Which is to say the, that our obsession with lineage and Hey Schmitty, we're coming for you with the Condra folks, the yep. obsession with lineage uh, and saying, oh, this single male bred this single female. Guess what? The cool bit is we have a lot less snakes to worry about it with because that is not – talk about mimicking you know, natural conditions. One male breeding one female in, those spe- in that species 100% is not mimicking what actually happens. Yeah. So, yeah. oh, cool. We have this chart that says that this is the dad and this is the mom. Guess what? You have a lot fewer babies to worry about it with. Uh, cool, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Shots fired. <laughs> it's it's also interesting too is because I, I definitely want to talk about Kendoya in a little bit too because I know the, there's that I feel that segue you know what I mean um, but you also have to think too and you don't have to I don't want to talk in, in definitives but no you have to you got you have to you got the double D's right and you said they're already essentially sexually mature there was a transition period from its previous owner to you and then you kind of figured out how you want to do things. You set them up. You had them for X amount of time. And I'm assuming you missed that one. You missed that one season. And now you're into this season, right? So now, was it that you didn't do something? Or was it that they were still freaked out? Yeah, I don't know. Tough to say. I mean, they're, you know? they're very, um, as with any diurnal snakes right they're very perceptive and i speak they're in cages you know and and they definitely notice when you come in and whether even in this situation the other day when they're they're breeding right i'm sort of tucking down and stuff but the female still was you know clear she wasn't moving in response to it but she had definitely you know had her had her head fit she did notice me before and then was sort of saying hey am i still noticing you whatever the male was just going berserk but uh it, crawling up the sides of the walls and stuff as he's breeding. Um, but yeah, she definitely noticed and all those things. So it's entirely possible. These are um, not young for sure. That male especially is not young. He's probably 15 or 20 years old. Um, the, yeah. Right. The, the female is, I think in, you know, a subsequent generation. So is similarly is not young, but uh, is decently five or six years younger than he is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're certainly, they gave me plenty of indicators that they were comfortable before. So I don't even know that this is, is different. They might've bred last year. I never noted it. I never happened to be in there, you know, and yeah. at the, the yeah. context to see it or not see it, maybe it wasn't happening. I wouldn't be able to, I, you know, wouldn't claim to know. I will say that I was surprised. I certainly wasn't expecting it at, at all, you know, yeah. um, I thought, oh, maybe coming into spring, then I'll start feeding them, and maybe then I'll start seeing stuff. That was the part that was so jarring, is that it was behavior that I was not anticipating 
at all in any way. Um, Totally threw me for a loop and uh, definitely led me to check out some (laughs) Los Membres weather to reach out to Chris, all this different stuff. It was reached out to Dr. Lofman, all this different stuff. So That, That even goes to, like, I have a theory of certain species obviously being opportunistic in terms of, you know, reproduction, but just going down montane rabbit holes, certain species, you know, we, we, we bitch and moan about the spikes in winter temperatures, right? Cause it, it screws up our Morelia and it screws up our, you know, neotropical rat snakes and whatever else. Right. But montane species gets a spike in temp. Is that a window of opportunity to be like, oh man, I got to get some, some genes out there while it's good and warm, you know? And then we talk into about sperm retention and ovarian follicle development in, in between seasons. And, you know, do I crap out my babies real quick because summer's this big and it's going to be cold real quick? You know what I mean? And like, I think about stuff like that with some of the pyro stuff and some of the milk snakes and like the montane pits, you know? And it's like, did you witness copulation because it was just a good time to do it? Or did you witness copulation because they're fearful of the coming weather or they're fearful of the coming season being shorter or longer or whatever, you know, who the hell knows? Yeah, hundred percent. And certainly I see that even just in the ambient conditions that happen here. Right. And so I always have a, have a joke at all of our East coaster buddies or, you know, when I lived in Michigan and all this different stuff of saying, whereas, you know, in Michigan, between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, it snows every day, either a little or a lot, right? right? And that's basically the only time of year that it can snow. Well, Colorado, it can basically snow any month besides probably July, July and yeah. August, arguably, right? But it's as likely to be 70 as it is to be, you know, single digits, right? Yeah. We have that variability because the big hot thing's a lot closer than it is for you, you know, or that it, than it is in, you know. East Lansing, Michigan, or whatever it might be. So it's so variable and volatile, and we can have it. It can look fine, and then it dumps a bunch of snow, and then it melts the next day. You know, even even if the ambient temperature is still in the you know mid thirties, you can still melt a bunch of snow with the big hot thing right there. Oh yeah, and I've been in Colorado Springs in July and stood in snow in the shade. So yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, that's the, it actually, we've done a bunch of talking, right. About the, the new school diamond Python thing. I do sure. think that was the Stan Cheers bit that, you know, and I've always sort of vouched for it in the sense of saying, I don't think he was directly trying to mess people up. I think he didn't appreciate the fact that he lived in Denver. Yeah. And so he's tossing diamond pythons into these coolers right in his garage in Denver and saying, Hey, I just leave them there for two months or whatever. And they come out and they breed and they do fine. Well, again, at, at elevation, right, those things probably had certainly had much more of a temperature, uh, temperature swing that was ke- functioning to keep them alive in a yeah. way that doesn't happen in Pennsylvania, right? Sure. It just doesn't, yeah. right? So if you do the same, it was sort of an unaccounted for factor rather than an intention to mislead. And certainly we talked to Stan on NPR and he kind of brought this up and it was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. And it was to the point that you had made of like, oh, the complexities we don't even appreciate that are having a huge impact. And yeah. wow, here's somebody who, uh, old school guy who winds up getting 
labeled as, oh, he tried, he wanted to corner the market by having us all kill our snakes and stuff by doing what he said he did. And it's like, no, it's the unintentionally missing a what wound up being a critical factor. Yeah. Oh, right. if you do that in Pennsylvania, it'll kill your snakes. You do it in Colorado, they'll be fine. Do it in Colorado, particularly in my garage that had this window that I'm showing you in the magazine. That's yeah. literally in the picture. You can see it in the picture. Mm-hmm. That is like, yeah. oh, okay. Actually, you can you can see that this is a thing. And with hindsight, you can look at it and say, how can we explain what, what the differentiation that we see here? And it's, oh yeah, I had them in these styro coolers in this environment that are being exposed in this way. I mean, shoot, my garage, right? It's going to get to here. We'll get those temperature, temperature changes, temperature rises, even being in insulated boxes sitting on spag that won't happen in Pittsburgh. It just won't. Yeah. And so if you do yeah. what I'm doing in Pittsburgh, you got some dead diamond pythons because they're not yeah. getting that rise that's keeping them alive. Again, that doesn't mean it's a good strategy. We don't right. we don't necessarily right. again we get into the are you hammering the switches or are we in mimicry? Are we hammering switches and stuff? You probably shouldn't do that because it seems like the answer yeah. is it was working for them, but they were probably barely surviving and then producing associated with it. Well, you don't have to do that. We can, we don't have to get nearly so close to lethal to produce the effect that we want. So you yeah. don't have to do that, but you could, you know, with hindsight, look at that and say, Oh, this is something that it wasn't that he was lying. He wasn't trying to corner the market doing this. It, it sure. worked for him, but it, with this fundamental change in ambient conditions, it did kill snakes in PA, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, and I mean, just at the same time, you can't get mad at him for that if you're one of those PA guys that lost animals because you took it upon yourself to mimic it verbatim to a T when you yeah, should have. You recipeed it. You didn't, you, you didn't take a step back and think through, which I, I won't blame you for, but it, yeah, to yeah. your point, it's like yeah, just because, our failure just because... to think through all the externalities that are happening doesn't make it the person who wrote its fault. You know, he right. presented where he was from. He presented the conditions he yeah. was doing. People failing to account for that, it's a huge bummer, but that doesn't mean he didn't tell you. And that's, you told us this. I vividly remember you told us this when we were in Texas. We were having a similar topic of conversation, and it was, if the recipe says to bake the cookies for 20 minutes at 200 degrees Fahrenheit, but you don't know that your oven runs hotter than my oven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not my fault. You burn those cookies, a hundred percent. You need to. And when we get into the cake that you know, cookies, cake, whatever, yeah, that yeah. it's like, guess what? There's an entirely different modification to the recipe for me to bake cookies or make a cake than there is for you at sea level. Literally yeah, on the, exactly. even pre-printed on the box. You know, this is the best joke of all, right? Oh, it's not just baking a cake. Well, guess what? I don't bake a cake the way you do, Phil. I can't. Yeah. It won't rise right. It won't work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's literally what we're talking about, bacon, you know, bacon a cake. It's funny because uh, I was watching a show with Anna Maria last night and the guy's cooking something and he puts the broiler on and he closes the drawer to the broiler. And like you could see the, the fire in there or whatever. And she like I'm infamous for being like, that's not right. That's fake. That's movie, you know. And uh, and she hits me in the arm and she goes, that's fake. That's that. You can't do that. I was like, what are you talking about? It's like, I don't cook. I don't know how to broil anything. She's like, you can't close the door to broiler. The whole thing will catch on fire and you'll burn everything. And I was like, 
I didn't know that. And at the same time, she's like, yeah, you have to leave it cracked open. Some of them have like a special window slot or whatever to let air out, you know, for recirculation. And I was thinking, man, I'm glad I didn't try and broil something because I would have burned the house down. Yeah, 100%. Same same concept. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And we get into that with cameras. Oh, all this stuff has so much functionality. You know, 99% of us can't appreciate certainly all the functionality that's happening. It's like, well, it turns out sometimes sometimes what we don't know is dangerous and other times, you know, it can nascent threat, you know? Yeah. Or you do what I do and you read the recipe. You know how that my I know that my oven runs hotter than normal, and instead of trying to tweak it and twist it, I get terrified and just don't do it. <laughs> I order out. <laughs> <laughs> like like with the Gila's, dude. I, I I tried, man. I I I fucking tried, and there was so much blood. <laughs> hindsight, it really wasn't a lot of blood. It really wasn't, and I was like, Rob, I'm scared. I literally, I literally was like, do I call Rob? Do I call Rob? Don't, don't call him. Don't waste his time. He's with his family. He's, he's watching The Simpsons. Don't call him. Don't call him. You know, it's midnight on a Tuesday. There's just blood all over the tub. And I'm like, why, why, am, I, why am I doing this? Why, 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 did, why did this happen? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe next time. Oh, 100%. You'll, you'll get there, man. You'll get there eventually. I mean, it's the same thing. You just need to be responsive to the things that you have. But it gets to yeah. the when when it's really difficult to make the conditions that you think are necessary, invariably that's harder, right? If you could, if you had a room in your house that naturally went to those temps and stuff, you wouldn't be nearly so worried about it, but because you're constraining the environment in the way you have to, you know, you know that you have that much more control, which, which means power, which means a bit capacity to do it badly. And that's why you're so worked up yeah. on it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and just uh, going back to like, Owen made a joke recently about how the place that he lives now, we all do this, but the place that he moved into now, he had, he wished he had forethought how to lay out the room, you know, and he was saying how the next place that he lives, the next house he gets, that's going to be a very big thing for him is mapping out the reptile room appropriately before ever moving anything in. And I realized that in the future, I want to have, some kind of broom closet or something that I can, cause it's Florida and it's not going to get cold enough that I could put like one of those stand up room AC things that they have in like, you know, Airbnbs or whatever, and just stick it in the closet just to get it down that 20 degrees. I don't need to, I don't need it to get into the fifties necessarily, but just to get that definitive drop. And that's something that for the future I'm going to have to do. And, and that would probably help with the helis too, you know? throw them in some you know tubs and just leave them in there and get it down enough so well, it also it's... helps to have actual winter weather yeah you yeah know. it's tough where i am man but dude i know a lot i know several guys in florida that breed gila's so i know i can do it i just need to not be a wuss about it you know <laughs> i'm just glad we finally like we've gotten a, a pretty decent cold snap here and so now, I mean, I'm in the garage right now and it's, I checked the Govi a few minutes ago and it's like 50 degrees. It's probably a little cooler now, but it's like, finally, you know, December was rough because it was 75 plus for most of the month. And it was like these, you know, the bimaculata and the, the Dion's, they're just, they're not going to, it's like, they're, they're not getting cold enough. They're not going to go, but I'm going to leave them in for another month and then. Hopefully this weather will stick around and it will keep them cool, but I'm kicking myself for not having a 
that cooler or something, you know, where I could just keep it stable for however long I wanted to. Yeah. Or, or you could be like me and you could spend money on a chiller and it's supposed to have a temperature range and it's not, it just lives at 45 degrees, which is way too cold for what I want to do. So I got to figure out what I'm going to do with that thing. So at least you have the ability to garage it for lack of a better word, you know? When Mother Nature cooperates. When Mother Nature cooperates. So, but, but Babo, Kendoya. Yeah, 100%. So maybe, maybe one of those will go. I think the interesting bit, right, with those that, what I was poking fun at Schmitty for, you know, and uh, Schmitty is the the present face of the Condro community. And believe me, I love yes, the the lineage charts and all as as much as the next guy. You know, I think dude, it's I'm, super I, cool. It, it, dude, I I can't. I wish I could do it. You know what I mean? Like, I wish I could. First of all, I wish I had the the. I, I'm not being insulting. The mental capacity to do like what Smitty did with the lineage and the the family tree, so to speak. But at the same time, even if I could do it like Smitty does, and not to talk about you like you're not there, um, I don't. I physically can't because oh, so much stuff's wild caught, you know. Right. That's why you just start a new chart. Yeah, I starting the trunk of the tree. I guess. I am yeah. continually surprised that that isn't done more, especially with like corns and stuff. Yeah. You know, like with some of those sort of those flagship animals, like uh, Hannibal that JT has. You know, like that sure. is a unique snake. Like that is something that I could be like, okay, yeah, I'd want to keep track of that because there's, I've yet to see another corn that looks like it. You know, I yeah. can understand if it's just like your sort of run of the mill ghost or specter or something like that. You know, it's like, yeah, it's a specter or whatever. But with, yeah. with individual animals like that, that do stand out, I think having those charts and stuff handy is, and they're just fun. You know, yeah, yeah. they like grand scheme. Do they, are they really that important? That's going to depend, I guess, on who you ask. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're not dealing with Arabian show horses here, you know, but no, at the mean, same if time. If you're talking about Condro people, we are. But that's what I was going to say is that it's becoming that, which I like. It's, it's fancier. Than it's you. getting in there. Yeah. So, yeah, 100%. So Kentucky I, Derby goers of the reptile world we have with our sun hats and fans and Davidoff cigars. Davidoff. Peasant. Uh, Davidoff Churchill, an aristocrat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, hundred oh, percent. So I don't know. I've just become a big believer, you know, in the concept that, on particularly on species, right, where the males uh, don't intrinsically view their in the presence of another male, don't view their sole objective as running off that other male. That then we're probably dealing with something where naturally we're going to have a lot of men. And so it even take actually, so taking a step back, right? Eugene Bissett, when he had come on to NPR, oh, eight or nine years ago, right? One, he's been on hmm, three or four times. And I don't mm -hmm. think it was the first time, but in, you know, two through four, right? Maybe it was the one where he called it Owen an unproven breeder. Maybe that, that was the episode. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, we're, we're chatting through this stuff and, he had mentioned that uh, I think it was, I think it was tiger or either lions or tigers, maybe the lions, right. That they're induced ovulators. So that to, to induce ovulation, they need to be bred and something obscene. It's something like they need to copulate 50 times in a 24 hour period to induce mm -hmm. ovulation. Um, 
and this is something we don't think about, right? And uh, well, a I think the whole reptile thing we get totally wonky conceiving of ovulation and the way that we humans, right? That human ovulation works, right? And it's fundamentally different because when we're talking about ovulation and reptiles, we're talking about actually the stage of no return, right? Not the regular, you know, not a regular cycle, but rather, you know, viewed through the lens of whether it's annual, semi, biannual, semi-annual, you know, every, every third year or something that would happen on an even more regular basis, right? We don't, yeah. we don't conceive of it in the same way. I, there is a, an overlap in that context, but we don't view it in the same way. It's not as long and it represents this shift to, well, you're getting eggs or nothing, or you're getting, you know, the development of live born young or nothing in a way that doesn't really happen in people where we view it over this, oh, it's this extended period of time. So the, the point of that is to say that if we conceive of that in our universe of the possible in the, the cosmic octopus way, Right, then okay, maybe we're seeing the same thing in reptiles. And I saw this in the Solomon Island tree boas is that so my construct was here's a species that lives in super high densities. And we know that because they, they occur on just not even throughout the Solomons, but on a couple islands at the far end of the Solomon Island chain. And historically, we've seen it where literally thousands of these animals have been shipped into the United States at a time, particularly in the early 1990s, was when they weren't available. And then they were in the early 1990s, literally thousands per year were shipped in from, from the Solomon Islands. Well, they're not throughout the Solomon Islands. They're on these couple islands, which means the density of these animals is just insane. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> literally, these couple islands where they live must be crawling. The trees must be crawling in these animals. So that means these males can't afford to be super particular. And in fact, we have niche partitioning uh, in the species, right? So that in the wild, the males never get large and, you know, never outgrow eating lizards. So juveniles and uh, through adult males eat lizards, whereas females get three or four times longer and heavier and obviously wind up getting to the size where they can take rodents, which always is humorous then when you get it engaged people invariably the most common pet when these were actually imported was uh was females and oh they eat just fine no problem yeah because you have a big wild adult female that is primed to eat rodents and so they will if you get a smaller one or a male they're they definitely have a seasonal fast and then coming out of that seasonal fast even ones that eat rodents sometimes they'll they'll want you'll have to kind of trick them back you know get some get some lizard scent and trick them back but this is something where obviously they're used to communing with one another. So my intent, the when I bred them previously, I did one male, one female, put them together. I, I know completely, you know, which, oh, I have the lineage chart. Well, it's two wild-caught snakes, but it's this one and this one. Um, you know, sure, no worries. But uh, instead, the strategy this time was to say, hey, I'm going to put all of the males that I have in with this one female at a time. And then next week, I'll move all those males in with this other, you know, I have this bank of females. I'm going to, this season, I'm going to try these two. These are showing me things that signs that they might be receptive. I'm going to put all the males in there at once. And so I did. And immediately one of the males started going after the female started working and she was receptive to it and started, you know, putting in this effort and he's, he's almost there. The little guy wore out right at the critical moment. (laughs) And you know what happened? 
the next male, Johnny on the spot, hopped right in. Good for him. And so on this communal species, I think that's the whole point, right, is that these are things that aren't spending their, the entirety of their effort. I took a picture, put it on Instagram, right, of five different the five males. Uh, this was actually when they were in with a different female. All five of them were out basking together under the light in the cage while the female was hidden away on, you know, sub sub tank heat at this time during the day. Well, obviously they're not busy fighting each other off. They're all just hanging out basking. She's not yeah. even around, you know, they're, she's hidden away because of the, where we're at in this given day cycle. Um, they're all hanging out basking together. I'd seen it previously, the in, literally the instant reaction. Okay. We had our, you know, number one gung ho. He's putting in all this work and right at the critical moment, he's fatigued. He wears out, he falls off. But Johnny on the spot was re- there ready to go. If it was a one-on-one pairing situation, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I think that's probably something that w- anything that doesn't spend their time driving off the other ones, that's probably something that uh, is a critical point. I know I had advised Keith. I said, hey, Keith, what happens when you put two male bowlings together? And he said, oh, well, you know, they kind of push each other around a little bit. And I said, okay, what happens when you put two males in with a female that's in there as well. And he said, well, I don't know. I didn't do that. You know, well, I would suggest that you try that and see what happens and, and watch it and let it run, you know, in the, in the way that you're talking about Phil with your, the healers, right. Where it's like, Oh, this happened. Okay. Well, well then what? Well, the answer is you're concerned about your animals and it's a joint project with someone else. And so you're, you're inherently, you were, you know, we're being the, the yeah. mother bird in this context, right? We're, we're, sure. we're letting our worry overrun. Well, then what? Well, we don't have a then what because we jumped in and intervened, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's recognizing, again, this is, that this is an unnatural situation. We're trying to, mim- again, mimic versus hammering all these different things, but saying, okay, well, in the wild, what would have been the then what? Well, in our constraints, what was the then what? Those might be two different things, and I, I don't disparage or you know blame you for intervening, yeah. right? That yeah. may well have been the thing to do in that situation, but also there's no doubt that you would want to then what it and say, well, if he had let it go a little longer, what would have happened? The answer could be that maybe it would have turned into copulation, or it might have turned into a fatality, you know, yeah. right? In the constraints yeah. that we have, we, we don't know, and so it's it's very uh, reasonable to take the safe approach and say, hey, I took I intervened, took him apart. I didn't want to risk the then one, but God damn it, you know. <laughs> but, who knows? I mean, and and to go back to like like Keith's stuff, the the fact that he knows what happens with two males together, that's a godsend because at least he knows that in that particular scenario. He doesn't necessarily have to worry that much. Now, obviously, put a female in there, it could change things, right? You could legitimately see some kind of combating, you know, situation. But it is a little bit of peace of mind to know that, like, like you with the with the Kendoya is, you know, they're not going to attack each other. So why not just try it? You know? <clears throat> yeah, a hundred percent. So. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. They uh, they really pushed the the boundaries of our expectations. That the last litter that that female had had was 205 days after her post ovulation shed. Wow. So they they take a little bit of time. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. The uh, check one thing back. That, yeah. Right. Circle round. Um, oh, let me clear my throat. 
one thing that I've I've noticed, especially with with geckos, is that it if you look at the yearly or annual or seasonal time frames in which testicular activity coincides with ovarian follicle action, whatever you want to call it, it can be anywhere from you know seven days prior to almost a month prior. And there's some people that even believe that with the season change and testicular activity turned on, it may have some kind of pheromone indicator or marker to convince females or, or something like that. You know, boys start making sperm, so therefore the girl starts dropping eggs, right? Um, and you look at time frame, and just going back to what you were saying about, like, we compare our, our, to ourselves, and, you know, we have a monthly cycle, right? Geckos and snakes and stuff, they don't have monthly cycles per se. But it may be 30 or 20 days before in the case of the, the, the sperm development. So it makes you wonder if putting males together, all of a sudden it's like, hey, what are you doing here? This is this is my tree. <laughs> who are you? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna, who are you? I'm gonna make some sperm because I need to be ready in case a girl comes around. You know what I mean? And it, you look at how much sperm is developed in so much time in relation to when ovulation is going to occur, could occur. I mean, you look at humans, it takes it takes about 64 days for a dude to grow back his full his full sperm count. I was gonna say load. His full sperm stuff is about 64 days, right? It doesn't mean that he needs to wait 64 days. You know, you're still producing tens of thousands or millions or whatever you're producing, but in the case of the gecko, or in the case of the snake, or in the case of the, the agamid, it may be a necessity to produce sperm because of a relative combative situation with other males for competition and keep that sperm load high so that when the time comes, you don't miss your window. Did, did I, did, was that too ranty? Excuse me. No, hundred percent. I'm with okay. you. And it's the yeah. same to me. It falls into the same box, right? Of saying, we know that they're perceiving things against all these different switches Right, all these different inputs that they're having reactions. How could either seeing or failing to see conspecifics not influence that as well? Right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean we, you know, we have the ability to perceive it. And who knows if, hey, if you're working liasis, right? If you're talking about, oh, I have this in my room. I have a pair of Northern Territory water pythons and a pair of Sawu pythons and a pair of all pythons. That it's like, well. How are they perceiving those? They're liasis. They're not ones that they would have any familiarity with in the wild. But is their scent, you know, or those pheromones having an impact? The same thing with the females and vice and across, right? Mix and match and say, okay, what's the impact? It's all complicated. That's that's yeah. the answer. So to me, the fool's errand would be to say, oh, it has no impact. To just wipe it away and say there is no impact. I think the thing that's far more likely is there is an impact, just whether or not we can measure and intentionally manipulate it to our to our ends. That's the part that is harder to say. Yeah. I even thought about like you have I grew up on a horse farm, okay? And we had a stud pony. His name was Petey. He was an asshole. He was just the worst horse you've ever 
interacted with. He bit humans, he bit other horses, he bit other livestock. But he was one of the only intact males that we kept on the farm. And uh, forgive me if you guys hear that motorcycle driving by. Fast and furious. I know, it's crazy. Boca Raton. Um, so Petey, uh, we would have sectioned off paddocks, right? With brood mares. And the sole purpose of him being a stud male was that he was perpetually horny. And he was always trying to breed those mares. It didn't matter what season it was. So when the mares did go into heat and it was time to, you know, do uh, artificial insemination or natural breeding, which we really didn't do on the farm. But we always kept Petey around to, to, to keep the juices flowing. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Excuse Tight me. Man. Right. And poor Petey, he, he never got a slice of the pie ever in his entire life. <laughs> but <bastard>. yeah, they, <laughs> I felt bad for him when I when I grew up and I was an adult. I was like, "Damn, sucks." Well, he bit you to make up for it, right? Yeah, right. Well, one hundred percent. He totally bit me on the forearm. Actually, frustrated. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can't blame him. But anyway, um, the whole my whole point of this was, I wonder if just talking on Kendoya, I wonder if you put, let's say that first male didn't necessarily get tired, right? Has anyone tried putting, <clears throat> excuse me, putting another male in a box? Yeah, in the enclosure, a bag, a bag. Well, not yeah. even a bag because I want them. I want them to see it. You know what I mean? I want there. There could be a visual aspect there. So let's say you get a a completely clear acrylic thing that's all ported, full of holes, and it's just like a a, a, a plastic colander, if you will, and you throw that male in there, and better yet, put both males in there together. Let them do their thing and then take one out and give them to the girl. Male's still in there. The threat of competition is still there. Do you think that would play a factor? I mean, obviously, it doesn't count in the case because you're one male. He got tired and he tapped out. But you, you, see, where I'm, you, you see where I'm going with this. Oh, 100%. And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. You know, if so, yeah, speaking to situations where you need to mediate it, right, where they do have more of an aggressive response to the other ones, that maybe that comes into play. Maybe you can do something like that, but then you can also imagine, right, if you're picturing rattlesnakes, right, that are combating and stuff, that then it's just combating the colander, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's still too distracted yeah. to, to get the effect you want. Right. Yeah, obviously, if you're, doing, if you're trying to breed Aatrox, that's not going to work. You, you need to let them do their thing. Um, but yeah, I just I think about stuff like that or even some of the Caribbean boas and stuff like just if you let's say you know that you want male A to pair, you don't want to have any kind of issue where you don't know who the father is. It may it may work. I don't know. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, yeah. shoot, we even see it with shed, you know, the, the shed skins, particularly the shed skins yeah. coming into season. I think they're, you know, definitely have an impact. And I. Yeah, a hundred percent. There's no way that that stuff doesn't. It, the effect might be negligible, or it might be huge. You know, yeah. and that even the the likely, you know, where it falls on that spectrum could come down to the, you know, picadillos of that particular man. Right? How incentivized were they? You know, Jerry Conway down your way, RIP. You know, who, who was one of the big, you know, Candelia folks. You know, on the front end of this, that front through medium end of this stuff. The technique was always, oh, multiple males because he'd toss a whole bunch of them together. And then once they sort of paired off, then he would pull those and maintain those as a pair. Um, I think the 
it's just sort of different approaches to the same problem, right? And saying, okay, well, what are we seeing? And I think you could even leave them together. Then we get into the issues of, well, are some females being up or down regulated by the presence of other females up or down regulating? And is that having an impact? Again, it's complicated. But yeah. uh, I like where your head's at. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, I love thinking of this shit. It makes it really frustrating, right? But it's, it's also super fun, too. And, like, I have so many animals that are young and just not ready yet. And, like, that's what I'm afraid of in the next year or two. Like, oh, my God, is, is my head going to explode from too many what-ifs, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 100%. Well, I think the answer yeah. becomes you need to try and pick a line and then, you know, yeah. follow it through and then see how it goes. And, heck, it could be just like the depi depi bit. Right. And I don't even know how it's going to play out. But what I do know yeah. is that, you know, watching them, I was like, oh, I think that my understanding is I do X and then I did it. And it not that even any there was anything wrong, I suppose, other than that nothing was produced or whatever. But it, I didn't take it as a problem. I just said, yeah, this year I'm going to try this and see what happens. And then, oh, it turns out that aligns with what other people have taken. John Lasseter, you know, is telling Chris, this is what the, the new approach is. This is what people are doing. And who knows even if different populations or descended from different populations would do differently to them. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Yeah. And uh, listening to John talk is phenomenal. And I think that he's one of those guys where he knows exactly how to do it. So he's going to keep doing it. But at the same time, he's a hundred percent trying a bunch of different stuff too, just to see what happens. And, that I like where I like where we're all headed with this shit. I do. Yeah, I do. hundred percent. And I've, at some point I feel like I'm going to get freaking Mexican pits and that I don't between you and Chris, man. Uh, and like I had, I had a, a Jedi at one point and I wound up giving it to my friend who has a bunch of pine snakes and I, I don't, I don't regret it, but I do. You know what I mean? It had, it had just started to change too, you know? So uh, yeah, they're neat. I mean, they're the good news is they don't really bite because man, they do have a heck of a heck of a jaw pressure, heck of teeth in there and stuff. So it's it's a good thing that they're they're chilled out and super cool and yeah, they're just so unique looking. You know, they just they're, they're beautiful for sure. Yeah, um, you know, not big but decently sized and yeah, the ontogenic change is uh, not quite a chondro. But uh, certainly they go from being rather plain to gorgeous, regardless of whatever directionality they take. Yeah. Just like birds. Just like birds. I do, I do like love birds. that Jani, uh, that contrast is just that that's super cool to me. I like that. So. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, it's, again, the classic problem, right? Both in terms of either whether it's field herping or stuff in captivity is there's so many awesome reptiles and amphibians and mammals and all these different things. But it's, it's we have to artificially limit our universe because if you just accepted everything, there's far too many things that you could possibly be into or interested yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's up with those Jamaican bows? Yeah. How those doing? <laughs> yeah, it's no worries. I mean, I think the answer on that, Schmitty, is you just need to, you know, send me the message that says, hey, I, I would like you to send me a couple babies, and I will send you a couple babies. <laughs> These are so freaking gorgeous, man. I'm so bummed because Nipper was talking about how he had a handful that he, you know, he's like, if I could send them to you, I would. 
but and I I'm curious about your your opinion on this too with those being protected like why would they those those aren't being imported so why are they so strict about that when pretty much all of them in captivity are, are captive bred in theory <clears throat> no they I mean I think they definitely are you know I don't uh, I don't think there's really well especially right that something that's endangered not threatened those are things that just there's no commercial activity for I suppose Florida is kind of an example the one small outlier, right? Mm -hmm. Because in, you know, those are things where literally we have traceable lineage on those two pre, uh, pre CITES, pre endangered species act listing on those species, um, in Florida. So those can be sold in the state of Florida, but they're, it, it's not a question of, Oh, an indigo thing of getting a permit. It's no, literally if you're outside state lines that it's, they, can't be involved in commercial activity i can give you some that's totally fine in the you know in the literature there so there's no incentive at all <laughs> there are going to be there's the risk of smuggling on that is essentially none because there's no incentive to do it right. because oh what's the oh i could smuggle them and they could be sold no they can't be sold they can't be sold so what's there's no incentive there to do that. So yeah, it's all people who are just just in it for the love of the thing, trying to give it to other people who are in it for the love of the thing. All you know, I got some you know from from Jay, mostly from Jeff, uh, on those, and yeah, literally no, not wink wink, no not no, literally a gift of here you go, you like these things, here you go. Yeah, it's so it's goofy. all about people wanting them you know, for themselves, they're worth nothing. Right. I just, I think I was reading an article about them not that long ago. I don't remember what it was for. I think it was for a magazine thing or something. And they were talking about how they're actually like, they're getting, they're, they're kind of hard to find. Like they're not in Jamaica all over the place. Like they're actually. Oh no. Yeah. So they're in the, what's called the cockpit country. So they're in sort of escarpment type territory. But I mean, the mongoose stuff is definitely a problem. They, you know, just like Australia, there's some invasive stuff that's a real problem in Jamaica. The people in Jamaica, despite not having venomous snakes, have a um, a real prejudice against snakes in general, which again, self self defeating. You know, people in their <laughs> inner relationships with snakes, it's always a problem, right? It's like the snake is not your enemy, you know. Again, cosmic octopus. I get why it seems like that snake that might bite you seems like a problem, but actually it's the rat that it's failing to eat because you killed it that's going to kill you. Um, it'll eat your, it'll kill you by eating your food, and it might kill you by vectoring disease. Um, yeah, and people have a problem with, with that, uh, lining up those motivations correctly. And unfortunately, in Jamaica, that does seem to be a problem, although we've seen some YouTubes and stuff of folks who – who are into wildlife, who, who find them and stuff. So they're, the answer is they, for the last 100, 150, 200 years, they're, they're under threat. I mean, people, mm -hmm. people kill them. They used to use their oil, uh, you know, snake oil, as, as we'll talk about, you know, and the, the fat to make snake oil and stuff um, was a big problem, you know, as a traditional use. But the real problem is they occur along, you know, a lot of their exposure, especially where we have visibility into it, is areas where there will 
encounter humans. And again, despite not having problematic venomous snakes, um, the impetus is all too often to to dispatch those those snakes, mm-hmm. despite to, despite the fact that doing so is very clearly a, you know an international a violation of international law. Hundred percent. They're just like Cuban cigars. Can't buy them, but you can give them away all day long. Yeah. Can't buy them, yeah. can't sell them. <clears throat> Which does a, make uh... me a little less, you know, sensitive to to people. Whenever something gets does get uplisted, I I understand the the impetus to say, hey, this this is, and there's certainly a, a positive and a negative to all these things, right? Again, everything's complicated, but um, like when black pines were listed. Or mm-hmm. if you look at it in the context of indigos and think, oh, my indigos, you need to get this permit. You wouldn't need a permit to give them away. You know, you wouldn't need a permit to give them away. So don't I, I don't I'm not really super into hearing like, oh, well, I'm not going to work with those because you need a per-. those are threatened, not endangered. Right. Sure, you could get a permit, you know, to have that threatened species and sell it across state lines. Oh, but I'm not going to pursue it because this. there are plenty of projects that people have pursued for literally going on 40 years that you cannot sell. Yeah. And they still exist and we still have them and they're still, you know, actually, so it takes us to the Puerto Rican boas, right, where the, uh, I think it was Graham Reynolds lab had looked at the diversity of the captive population of Puerto Rican boas. And I know I had plenty of samples in there. Je- you know, Jeff was working with Graham to, to foster this paper. I had provided samples for this paper and all this stuff, right? Looking at the diversity, the genetic diversity in the captive population of Puerto Rican boas. And you know what? What was the result of that paper? Shockingly diverse. They were amazed. It replicated the, the diversity found in the wild. They couldn't believe Wow. The results, and you know why that is? It's because he can't sell them, and so all all of the the captive population that exists right now is a product of people working solely for the the benefit of that species in captivity, solely interested in saying, "Hey, let's oh you know let's swap babies. We'll, I'll send you you know you, let's trade back and forth because I want to have the this most diverse pairing that I can do." And why did that happen? It's because you cannot sell. Yeah. You know, there's a ton of things that things that would have a committed following if they uh, things are actually wind up in a a worse spot when you can sell them. But people, they're sold as trivial. Right. And that sort of was the Candoya thing. It's the Mm -hmm. same as the Karusha thing. I, I, I must admit. Right, that I have a good laugh. Everyone goes back to, oh, back in my day, Viper bows were $30 or Karusha, you know, the prehensile tailed skinks from the Solomon Islands. Oh, those were $30. They were only ever $30 because we were externalizing the cost of production onto the wild. That's yeah. why they were cheap. If we ever accounted for what it takes to produce those animals, they, would, <laughs> they should never have been that price because it, you couldn't produce them for that price. The only reason you could they were quote that price, right? Is because we were just saying, oh well, there's a thousand of them sitting in the wild, and we can just grab them. Yeah, right. Yeah. No worries. They have a baby, or at most twins. You know, maybe once a year, or maybe every other year, right? They would never be cheap. They should. 
Karusha should never have been $30. The only reason they were is because we had externalized the cost. If they were worth, they'd be better situated to be worth nothing, either as is now, you know, $800, $1,000 a piece, whatever. I mean, there's, I've had them before. They're sort of little monsters that you need to give a bunch of space and all this stuff. But the answer is there are things that make them, for most things, there's a reason they're not ideal. Almost everything. Mm-hmm. Almost everything. There's a reason it's not ideal. But there's someone for whom the the juice is worth the squeeze, right? right. Where it's worth whatever their negative is, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, there are reasons people don't like Jamaican bows, Puerto Rican bows, Candelia, whatever whatever it is, right? Well, yeah. those particular negatives don't bother me the way they bother other people. So it's a great fit. It's not to say they'd be great for everyone because they wouldn't. There's different picadillos that are better and worse for different people. And that's essentially the case for everybody even if you go to corn snakes right well a newborn baby corn snake especially a keys corn or, or you know miami corn that really wants to feed on anolis that's probably not ideal if we actually take it at face value and say oh is this ideal for everyone no you know if you follow it through its whole life cycle once it's started feeding on frozen thawed rodents yeah no worries or whatever but if you followed it through the whole thing no it's not ideal for everybody but there's someone for whom it's the ideal or whom it can work they don't they're not worried about that stuff you know all those things different things come into play and i think often if things the things that are situated worst are the things that people view as cheap and then then especially they'll look at them and say oh but i used to be able to get these for cheap and it's man it's so infuriating you know it's like, well, to what end, right? What, are you saying, man, I wish they were still cheap so I could go buy 20 of them and make sure they're around forever, you know, even if it means I have to give them away? Or are you just saying you're disappointed to pull out the wallet? Because if yeah. it's the yeah. latter, that's a bummer, man. You know, yeah. because you're just saying, oh, I wish they were cheap because we would externalize the cost of producing them on the wild. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-government. I'm not. I'm not anti-fish and wildlife. I love fish and wildlife. I think they serve a very powerful, valuable point to our world. But But. there are certain situations where uh, legislation has has impeded people from doing what you're doing with the Internatus. And you look at like gopher tortoises, for example. There's only one reason why gopher tortoises can't be kept. There's one reason and one reason only mysoplasma and someone's gonna i'm sure someone chime in here i'm not an expert i'm not a scientist you guys can chime in and correct me where i'm wrong but to my knowledge the overabundance of mysoplasma in certain key populations especially in peninsular florida is to the point where the reason why you can't touch a gopher tortoise is because they don't want you to pick it up on the east side of the road walk it across to the west side because you're being a nice guy trying to save it from traffic and that you just killed 400 tortoises on the west side of the road because it literally just contaminated all the other ones and here's the problem is that oh, people are going to hate me when i say this but there's only one place in that i know of that will actively test for gopher tortoise mycoplasma and that's the university of florida because they have pioneered a way to test for it However, because of the extreme expense at the at the, the, the cost of doing these testing, they won't do it unless they have, I think, 12 or 15 sample specimens. So if I got a permit to rehabilitate wildlife and I got a permit to rehabilitate gopher tortoises and I wanted to take a sample of blood from a veterinarian and mail it to the University of Florida, unfortunately, they won't test it 
because they need those other specimens to, to kind of go off of. I don't know if it's a control thing or what. So because of that, for lack of a better word, nonsense, you can't keep, breed, touch, look at, get within arm's length of a gopher tortoise in the state of Florida. And I think that sucks. You know what I mean? I really do. I think they would be awesome pet tortoises if you could. I mean, granted, they dig and they need space, but like it would Most definitely do anyways. <laughs> it would cut back on the on all the surplus sulcatas. You know what I mean? All those stocking stuff for sulcatas. I feel bad for them, you know? So and, and again, I'm not knocking the University of Florida. I'm commending them for coming up with this testing and for having the ability to do it and for, you know, spreading the knowledge and, and, and getting it out there as to why things are happening the way they are. It just sucks that the money isn't being put in appropriately to continue the research or further the research. And at the same time, because of fear and because of potential issues, the species gets chastised. End rant. As he takes a long drag off his cigarette. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I can't really chime in on that. We have those here, but I've never actually seen one in the wild. So. Yeah, I see them all the time, man. I love seeing them. They're awesome, dude. They're awesome. But I understand the issues. I still think it's kind of poopy. I feel like there's better ways to go about it. But what do I know? You know, I'm just Phil. I'm with you, man. Drinks Thanks, and uh... peach. Yeah, and ooh, he's got a little mixture going there. Don't get excited; it's emergency. Okay. <laughs> the uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you 100. percent That's again, if you just took something that wasn't available now or hasn't been historically available for some period of time, so there isn't a captive population that's sitting ready to be to be integrated. You know, in the same way, I just think it's fascinating that if you look at Jamaicans and Puerto Rican boas, right, that we're talking about things from uh, that have original Endangered Species Act listed species, right? So they've been on the list from day one uh, of that in the early 70s, you know, early mid 70s. The those things are still sitting here now, and that whole time have not been a commercial, you know a species yeah. of commercialization, right? And it's not like they were being actively produced before then, right? So all of this, all the stuff that we have represents cooperation. All the stuff we have represents people actively pursuing the goal of doing them for their own sake. And that's it, right? That's all there is to it. And those, still, those things exist and they exist in their pure forms and they're, they're doing awesome. And that's still happening where it's like, hey, okay, you know, uh, they're, they're, they have their the the negatives. So, you know, people assign to West Indian bows, oh, maybe they're willing to musk. If you're talking about Jamaicans, well, they're a little bit fussy feeders, particularly relative to inornatus that are, dude, those things are nails. They, they are, you know, you can just envision, you know, I know I need to watch the video. Dave Kaufman goes and finds one and, you know, all this stuff. That's something I'd like to do because, it, man, those, that species... I get that I get why people like Jamaicans, right? Because they they all are these inherently calico looking critters where each scale is different. And then it's all, the iridescence of those scales is amazing. So that you have a calico critter that then has the ability to show literally be a rainbow serpent, right? Depending on how the light's reflecting off it. I get it. 
but they're also, you know, they're they're a little finicky, they're a little fussy. And in ornatus, right? It literally its names mean, you know, not ornate, right? It's not yeah. ornately yeah. patterned, right? And they they do have a huge range where they can be like the thing that Dave saw, where they're soup they have a um like geckos, almost they have a day and night coloration depending mm-hmm. on their exposure to light. So if you pop one of those into UV coming out of a cave, then yeah, you're seeing it in its night coloration or its nocturnal coloration into that full UV. It's going to be super pale and look beautiful and all this different stuff, or they can be black. Um, but I tell you what, those things are, in terms of a captive snake, just enjoying a snake that is very much itself as a snake that, you know, will bite, you know, if it's going to bite you, well, it's going to try and bite for your eyes because no, it knows where those are, knows what knows what it's doing and stuff. At the same time, super easy to feed, you know, always willing to give it a go. Things can go sideways. It'll eat great. All this stuff as a captive, enjoyable animal. The Inornatus, oh, you know, chef's kiss. Nice. Actually, for, I a, have a... for a snake, for a snake keeper, the Inornatus, yeah. chef's It's a, a snake keeper's snake. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, sure. I have a I have an acquaintance who who got one, um, and he he happens to be a Puerto Rican guy, and uh, and he got one. And he set it up in this super cool arboreal enclosure, and it just it wasn't doing well for him at all. And uh, I told him I was like, dude, I don't know anything about boas, but I was like, look, try this, try that, whatever. And uh, he has family in Puerto Rico, and he was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna go and see what I can see, and. Uh, he wound up trying to get people to guide him to go find them. And nobody wanted to, nobody would because of their status and whatnot. And he wound up, I guess, sneaking into like a state park at night and he found a cave and dude, he said he found like four or five of them at the mouth of the cave, just snagging bats. (laughs) And, and he was like, he's like, fuck man, what am I going to do? I got to find bats. Like, what am I going to do? And he said, it was so amazing because, you know, he's got his headlamp and, you know, it's so, uh, I don't know if it was a waterfall or something, but there's active water movement in the cave. And he said it was so cool because you see the eye shine and you see this, the night color of the snake and you get the moon bows from the mist. And now you have the iridescence of the snake from the headlamp and the moon bow, of the mist in the cave. And he said it, it was, it was breathtakingly amazing. And he went back and replicated it. And, you know, he wound up putting, uh, 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 he increased the humidity. He decreased the amount of light. He made it, dark he put like sheets over the side of the enclosure and the thing wound up doing really well but that just goes to show you that he liked it because puerto rican pride and heritage and all that and he thought it was a cool snake and he's a snake guy and it just goes to show you that like seeing in the wild getting the observations learning all that you can talking to people that are share your passion and just enjoying an animal for what it is because it has no monetary value you know yeah 100 awesome. percent. and even to the bats point right is i've definitely noticed in them a predilection towards smaller food you don't need to feed them bats but give them you know they like a weaned mouse a lot mm-hmm. more than they like a jumbo mouse much less a rat you know so that if you're approaching that thing in the way that people you know kind of our worst nature leads us to oh i feed media only medium rat yeah. no what is that oh it eats bats what does that mean it means that it eats things that are mostly wing, you know, at the, you know, the kite. Yeah. Essentially, you know, at best a weaned mouse with giant, you know, things that make it harder to eat, you know, hanging off of it, even for a six or seven foot boa. Right. So it's like, 
well, what does it want to eat? Well, you can see it in them and how they respond to, to prey. And they'll do the same thing. They'll sit, you know, with the verticality. They'll, they're ready to go. They love having the, the, the room fixtures or the red bulbs so that, you know, well, they're all on a timer. And then after that, after lights are out, they're all sitting there and they're all dangling down and they're ready to go. And if you give them something, you know, small, purport, proportionally small, and nothing big at all, but proportionally small relative to their size, you can see it in them that if, okay, I have an, a, you know, frozen thought adult mouse versus one that's just weaned, the reactivity to that just weaned, there's so much more interested in it. You know, they'd much rather have, you know, a couple of those than they would some, ma- I can't, well, I've never fed them a massive item. I wouldn't know, but mm-hmm. Uh, certainly it's like, okay, again, mimicry versus, okay, we're, we're taking the lesson from what's happening, yeah. applying it to our circumstances saying, okay, what's the line of best fit? Yeah. I don't have bats to give them, but I do have smaller mice. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that same concept too of, you know, you have a five-year-old human and you give him a slice of pizza and he eats a slice of pizza. But if you put a whole pie in front of him, he's going to be like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Like, I don't know what to do. You know, it's the same concept. Yeah. A hundred percent. Right. So. And it's like, Oh, this, I can, this is, this is manageable versus this is an unwieldy mess. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. it a similar situation with like the rhino rats? Cause that was something we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know, I noticed two of my three spent a lot of time soaking and you would, you and my, Matt had mentioned, bigger meals seem it seems to to make them soak a little more and so i started trying to feed them something a little smaller i still have one that soaks all the time um, you know whether it's got food in it or not but is it a similar scenario there where they're they're eating small stuff for the most part like they're yeah i think so and i mean the on these so you, you won't see that soaking behavior from eating a big thing they just yeah. they just don't seem as into it but in terms of the, and I do think it is, so there's a slight difference, right? I think the rhino bit is they're probably, you know, getting some Calabria, you know, some Calabria to them where they want to, their ideal scenario would be to come upon, you know, some, a nest of birds and just hammer yeah. the heck out of that, you know, and get some just neo birds that are going. Um, whereas the Inornatus really want, they just have this lifestyle where they're, going to hammer these little bats that are flying by right so it's it's more perpetual and they actually will grow pretty quickly because i think they want to hit that ideal size where they're all eating okay we're we're capable of taking this big item and any insular species right we get to that point where some sometimes we have insular dwarfism where the prey species are all small and others you get some what the those tiger snakes where they're all you know, or most of the population's blind because they get their eyes pecked out by the, you know, by by the yeah. adult birds that uh, they they feed on. They have to be born big because there's one thing that they eat seasonally. You know, once a year they get to eat these fledgling birds or whatever, and they'll they'll do that. And the adults will try and it literally will peck their eyes out and this stuff. But they're born a certain size to take that as the prey item. So I think. Um, Certainly, Puerto Rican boas. Uh, I'm not saying they definitely will eat anolis. That's what they want to eat as babies. But they transition to rodents really easily. So I think you know mammal prey. They're ready to. They want to get into the point of eating bats, whether they're 
big bats, small bats. I'm sure there's size variation in the bats that fly by them. Something to that, but they're all kind of working to that end. Um, The rhino thing, I think they just, they're mostly geared up to, to gobble small things um, just like Calabria are and that sort of stuff. So that they love that man. And the the way that sits in their mass, I, I just don't think has the same impact. I didn't go, I didn't seek out, that observation right it was just oh i'm with you oh they you know i always see and but it was always oh my females soak and it's like well why is it just the females that i'm seeing so what what's happening oh i am feeding them a lot more and then i stopped doing that and then i stopped seeing them do that and then it's sort of retrofitting and saying okay well what's the i'm seeing this different output what's the different inputs and oh there is one and what if i change that input and then it changed Mm-hmm. what I was seeing on the output and heck, I really see it in the hatchlings and things that take a meal. They're all soaking mm-hmm. and then they stop, you know, and then I feed them again and they soak again and then they stop. Uh, so they're, I just think that species in particular is really good at converting that energy into, to growth out and maintain growth, especially mm-hmm. if you're keeping them in a, you know, more, more regulated temperature um, such that, people would be shocked. Like, I know it's shocking that it's like, Oh yeah, I have, you know, particularly one particular male, but all of them do it. Um, but just a little less extreme where they'll, I'll stop feeding them and then they won't feed. Uh, some of them it's like, Oh, I'll warm them up. Maybe I'll get a meal into them, a meal or two into them. Others. Oh, they'll start breeding and then they'll take a meal. I have one in particular that won't breed until the female, the, all the females in the room have ovulated and laid eggs, ovulated wow. and then 30 days laid eggs. So we're talking about literally nine to 10 months between feeds on that. Wow. And some of that time is cooled down, but a lot, I mean, those last two and a half, three months, you better believe I'm trying to feed him <laughs> and he won't. And then, the last, last, not even that he's paired with, but in the room, that last female lay eggs. And all of a sudden, you know, she'll then go into a shed out of that and he'll, he'll flip a switch and he, he will eat every day. I mean, this is the other thing, right? We, I think we do so wrong. And when we talk about seasonal feeding and all these things, especially if you're feeding smaller meals is it sounds weird, but if you have then a snake that's coming off of not having eaten for nine months, I don't have to feed it and then wait like a week to feed it again. You know, on the startup, actually, I probably, what I'll probably do is feed it really small, you know, probably yeah. like we're talking pinkies, you know, but I'll probably give them three or four and then yeah. wait two or three days and do that again. And then, you know, wait three or four days and then I'll give them, a fuzzy you, or something like that. Do you think that? Do you think that's indicative to their main physiology? Like, so I've noticed, like in in Boiga, you know, feeding small meals that don't fight back is a key, especially like bringing an import Boiga and like getting them settled in. If if a if a dendro is big enough to say take a a, a, a weaned rat, right? It's physically large enough to do that. 
if I put a weaned rat in there, it's going to freak out because it doesn't mm -hmm. want to. It, do, it doesn't have the constricting ability. It doesn't necessarily have as potent of a venom. It's not a rattlesnake where it's going to bite it and release and then track it down with heat pits later on. Like it, it that's wants not the a case. couple of fuzzies. It wants a couple of fuzzies in a deli cup that it doesn't have to fight against. Do you yep. feel that the rhinos are the same way? Because oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, they will they will fight that stuff and they'll go for it and you know take it down or whatever, but. Yeah, they're the pre they would much prefer to just nail the heck out. I mean, that's the thing, right? On all, you know, you, Schmitty, I know you're saying, oh, I don't feed them a lot. It, it's not that you're feeding them a lot. It's whatever the size, I promise you, whatever size you're feeding them, I feed them smaller, you know, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. it's not, like, I've, I've seen this stuff because I've done this stuff. I had one female, literally eight, seven adult mice in one go. One go. That's incredible. What? Then that season, she proceeded to lay the largest clutch I've ever had, 17 <laughs> eggs. Wow. Um, yeah, seven adult mice in a go. That's crazy. You know? So, yeah, I, I'm not saying it from a position of not having – I've tried it all the different ways you can do it. What I can tell you is that now my ideal size for uh, feeding rhinos is like hoppers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. crawlers into hoppers. They love it. And it's like, maybe I'll give them one today and another one tomorrow and skip two days and give them another one and skip three days and give them another one, then feed them three days in a row, you know, whatever. Yeah. You, and I you love basically, it. You treat them like monitors. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. That's that it's like meals often. Yeah. And, and often can mean like multiple in a day. It can mean every day for, three or four or five or six days and then nothing for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Just make it, make it, make it You're again, simulating the wild. You know what I mean? A, a, a rat isn't going to come or a prey item in general may not come across their path every Tuesday, you know, right. but at the same time, it may get 10 or 15 prey items that whole week. You know, who knows? Yeah. hundred so. percent. Yeah. That's I tell you what, adult rhinos love pinks, man. Give them, really? Yeah. I mean, literally, they'll eat them in like three seconds. Popcorn and it, it, it raises, an, I'm sure, man, it's got to be getting late for you guys. But, you know, we're, it, it raises a super interesting point where it's like, to me, this, as we get into signs that, that our reptiles are doing well, one of the things that I always take is things that will take food much smaller than what you would anticipate. Right. So that's actually a sign that something's really, really feeling comfortable in itself. That like if you had a, you know, an adult ball python, right, people think they're finicky and whatever. If you can if your adult ball python will eat a frozen thawed hopper, like yeah. if you can get it, you just offer it on tongs and it eats a hopper, that snake is feeling itself. That thing is feeling comfortable because yeah. that is not you know we're not attuned to the size of item that this thing should care about that literally it can't even constrict it right it's yeah. trusting you that this is a frozen thought item that doesn't represent yeah. a threat that it can just it's a swallow it's just it literally the size of its head especially on you know not these oh it's an adult at six months old but rather you know this is a 10 year old ball python and i'm giving it a hopper yeah that's smaller than its head and if that thing is willing to take that and eat that and eat that no problem that is a sign that that animal is doing really well for you and is trusting you to set it up to do well because 
it has nothing it can't the reason it would intrinsically refuse that is because it can't do anything with that what can it do with that it can bite it but it's still going to be alive you know in its mouth so if you can if your animals are willing to take sort of that mist size thing that actually feeds really well into this animal's doing really doing really well for you and i tell you what man on you know the rhinos and things if you have either large pink you know pinks to large pinks or whatever the reason oh man we've entered <laughs> it opened a whole new can of worms here the to me so much of this stuff right is driven by we utilize we come up with ways to rationalize what we want to do right you know that then tie into the saying oh no i do it because of this thing that's for the betterment of the animal right yeah. well why do people want to feed one weaned rat instead of a half dozen weaned mice for the same protein mass it's like well because it costs twice as much to have six weaned mice than it does to have a weaned rat forget the price convenience yeah and and yeah, yeah you're sitting there uh, and needs to yeah. eat it you know or some are going to get wasted if i'm not doing this. all that stuff right all that plays in so mm-hmm. it's but I'm going to rationalize that by saying, oh, no, it stretches them out and it's better for the better for the snake and all this stuff. Those are rationalizations that that may be true. Maybe not. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But it also happens to coincide with what I want to naturally do anyway. And in yeah. the same way. Right. Oh, I can feed my rhino one, you know, hopper mouse or I could give it literally a dozen pinkies. Well, a dozen pinkies. I, I have. No thought in my mind as to what any of this stuff costs at this point, but it, I'm sure right, a dozen right. pinkies cost more than a hopper. Yes, yes, you would be. You it would doesn't be. matter when you breed your own feeders. I uh, guess not. Uh, but you know, so if you're sitting there, right, and you're like, you know, oh, am I going to give it a cup of of these frozen thawed pinks, or am I going to give it one hopper? You know, again, convenience, ease, all this stuff, cost, what, whatever it might be, right? That's I would suggest that those things are probably impacting how we're presenting that stuff a lot more than what actually gives us the, even the best results, let alone sort of our best experience of it. Yeah. I think that also just looking at like my own stuff, like with my Dramarcon, excuse me, with my Dramarcon, they're big enough to eat a medium rat, but the amount of energy that's going to be expelled, the, the the apprehensiveness of the specimen snake at hand of man that's a big thing i don't know if i want to eat that i don't know if i can digest that in time it's you know it's 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 mm-hmm. january i don't know if i'm gonna ooh, i don't know about that but if i put a plate of 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 chicks like five or six chicks it's the same weight as right. the medium rat you know scarfs them all down just annihilates the plate right and to me, like that react, like you can physically see it in their face. Like I don't want to anthropomorphize, but you can see the snake looking at the medium rat. And it's like I don't know. I'm I could eat that. I don't know if I want to. Maybe the snake does a lap of the cage and comes back. You know, opposed to the plate of chicks, and it's like done. You know, so it's 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 also going back to our very first conversation of like reading the room, reading the animal. You know. Just because, just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know. Right, and even if they'll, yeah, that can can mean that they'll they'll take it, right, and yeah. it, it will work, whatever that means. But that doesn't mean that it's that if you tried these different things and you were willing 
I think that's so much of it is it's like, okay, are you willing to accept the answer that they give you? Right. If you try all these different things, are you equally willing to accept the answers they're going to give you? Yes. And, or do you just want for almost all of us? The answer is no, you know, we're not, we have our own biases that we're coming to it. You know, me included, you included, right. Where it's like, yep. It's not a wholesale, whatever it, we want to say that, you know, it's certainly it's nice to be able to say, oh, I'm open to whatever it tells me. Ah, no, there's there's a whole host of constraints recognized and unrecognized that make that not true. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. I love so, I was going to say Smitty's going to go thaw out 50 frozen. Thawed I've, I've given him smaller meals because <laughs> I didn't have anything on sort of the more like ratioed scale so to say yeah. you know, so to speak and they go absolutely nuts man the, <laughs> they eat those things so fast it's insane it, like yeah. it's like they just evaporate oh yeah man they they you know that's sort of the to me the ideal on the especially you know i have all those three-year-olds that are now four-year-old female rhinos and all that stuff and yeah the typical meal for them was like i don't know eight or nine pinks a piece mm-hmm you know, where it's just, and literally, as you're talking about, you know, I had a, this row of them or whatever, and it's by the time I'm down to the bottom one, the yeah. first one's gone, and we just started over, and then it's like, you see them, you see them wear out on it, and it's sort of like, oh, I've had six or seven, and it's sort of like, oh, I'm not really super, okay, then we're done, no worries. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I noticed that with my male cyan in particular, um, you know, I'll offer him a, an adult frozen thawed, and eight or nine times out of ten he doesn't touch it but if i put a cup of four fuzzies in there they're gone yeah yeah my female anything goes quail eggs adult mice whatever she eats it but that male he's much more particular and i do it makes me wonder if if it's a similar situation like phil was talking about where it's it's just easier yeah it's an easier opportunity to eat these four helpless little fuzzies than one adult mouse that might might screw me up. It's I don't think it's easier for the animal. I think it's safer. You know what I mean? I mean it's, that's it's, why so many things eat eggs because it's like it's yeah. the one meal that doesn't fight back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Doesn't fight back. And he yeah. won't touch quail eggs either for whatever reason. So, oh, dude, I gave the dries quail eggs. And it's so funny, man. Like it just every snake is different, man. Doesn't matter if it's the same species or not. Every snake is different. And you got one snake that literally slurps down every quail mm-hmm. egg hole like a like an African egg eater. Yep. And you get the other one where the snake is nudging it with its nose, like rolling it around the cage. And I'm like, oh, you're gonna crack this egg and it's gonna make a mess and it's gonna smell. And then I come back a week later and I find a whole egg in the substrate just sitting there. Like, pfft, I don't want to eat that rock. You know, no offense. I've had, I've had mixed success, man. I've had some bears that, that eat them. I've had some corns that attempted to eat them. Uh, yeah. I'm mad that I never got a chance to feed my cynodon eggs. I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Oh, yeah. Until um until Matt said it. And then uh, was it Terry that also does it, too? I think so. Yeah. Matt told me about it. And I was like, oh, man, I got to try that. And then Terry posts a bunch of pictures of his scarfing down whole chicken eggs. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is incredible. And then the friggin' thing passed away. So see, and I was sure that the Jansen and I would be all about some quail eggs too, but they didn't. 
Yeah. You didn't touch him. I that to me though, you almost it comes down to head structure too. I don't know. I just feel like you look at the 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 jaw shape of something like a boiga or something like like I feel like Nerodia has that same jaw structure that would slurp down an egg, but like Pantherophis, I don't think so. It's the head's wrong. Know, you know what I mean? The yellow rats here. If you got chickens, you're gonna find a yellow rat in your in your coop at some point. Yeah, but is it all the chickens eggs. or is it... no? It's even oh, the eggs. Yeah. Oh, really? It doesn't even okay. touch the chickens because well, once again, wrong. eggs don't run away. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Or is it the fact that it smells like chicken and it doesn't run away? If you wash the egg off with Dawn soap, would it? Eat I the think egg? it's. I think it would still eat the egg. I don't. We have to test this. Let's test this. If I find a yellow rat, I will. Okay. You know, I got. I got to contact. Uh, Oh, crap. Now I can't remember the guy's name. I feel bad. He's a ball python breeder in North Florida. Super nice guy. Great animals. Nice guy. He's funny on Instagram. He has a yellow rat living in his uh, rat barn. And he's basically, he feeds it once a week. And I've like, it. It, it's, and it just lives in his rat barn. It's the coolest thing, man. And like, I, I, found I that, really, I found a yearling yellow a couple months ago and I put it in a bucket and I threw like three live fuzzies in there and they were gone. It's like, here you go, buddy. For your nice. efforts, because he was chilling, chilling around <laughs> some of the uh, the grow out bins that I had in that in that barn, and I was like, "Well, I mean, you tried, so yeah, a for effort." Just give you something. Yeah. Oh man. Well, Smith, is there anything else you want to touch base on? I can't even remember anymore. Rob's I know, dude. Such an, enig- an enigma. I love it. I just... fucking love it when he comes on this show, man. It's the best. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm I'm all out of questions at this point. I mean, we could go on forever. <laughs> I, I know we could. Talk about with Rob. Yeah. yeah. I think we're good for a while. I, I just want to thank you guys. You know, I, I love the show. I love what you put out. You know, I, to me, there's nothing better than being able to listen it, you know, I knew in that context, your guys were going, why is he messaging now? This is three or four days after we'd thrown up the show, but when I got a chance to listen and, you know, the idea that there's so much uh, thought provoking content is fabulous. You know, I really appreciate that. It's uh, tremendous that I can listen to it. And then I'm, you know, messaging you guys saying, Hey, what about this? What about the, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Well, it's all just such, it's such fun stuff to, to, you know, spitball and, and think about and, oh yeah, you know, it makes you question how you're doing things, or at least I think it should yeah. to some degree. And, you know, outside perspectives and other perspectives are always a, a, a good thing. Yeah. Especially when you do it as much as the three of us do it, like regardless of level of experience or animals being kept, mm-hmm. you, we all fall into the subconscious repetition and, I know for myself, I won't speak for you guys, but for myself, like I forget things or I didn't know things and now I do, or I'm reminded and like, that's awesome. You know what I mean? So. Bobby Pebbles is wise beyond his ears. Yes. <laughs> dude. Love this. Right hobby, on, dude. Love this hobby. Love this community. Get to meet your heroes. Bob Rock <laughs> is our hero. 
That shirt still oh, has to be made. We need to make that fucking shirt, man. Jeez. I was, you know, it was funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about the whole cosmic octopus thing. I was like, we should totally get Adeline to draw up some sort of cosmic octopus thing, like yeah. character or something, and get that on shirts. Mm-hmm. Yep, we should. Maybe Bob Bob Rock's face is the octopus. <laughs> Just his like head. The, the Sublime logo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The sun, except it's the... It's the Octopod. Yes. <laughs> I'm literally right going to a bunch of chicks. Well, <laughs> I'll be listening next week for sure. So awesome, man. Have a good show. And yeah, it's all fantastic and much appreciated. Thanks, buddy. Thank you so much. Smitty, this show else? is brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons and Black Box Cages. Please check them out. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. TikTok, I'm sure, if you're on there. Um, we'll be back for THP 148. I think the Crawl Daddy will be joining us again because Jake has yet to have a show with him. So nice. we're going to make that happen. I don't have a clue what we're going to talk about yet, but I'm sure we will figure something out. I'm sure you'll figure something out. Um, yeah. Do you realize what's going to happen, right? What? It's going to turn into a Nerody episode. Uh, right? you, that's like, it. You read my mind. What's going to happen? It's going to be, oh, hi, this is this is Zach. This is Bratz. This is me. Here, talk about Nerody. I'll be By the way, have you seen my, my banded Dixie counties? Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> What's that smell? Oh, that's just fish. It's Nerodia. <laughs> Nerodia musk, the smell of victory. Nerodia musk in blood. Ugh took it there uh, all right everyone don't forget everyone to listen to the venom exchange radio it's on spotify it's on apple podcasts it's on google play we need more more is coming but we have more recorded we're just trying to pace ourselves so um we're probably going to do it i gotta talk to nipper and make sure that he's cool with this um but we're probably going to do it on the first sunday of every month that might work out to be good every Sunday of every month, every month. Uh, no, no, but yes, the first Sunday of, of the month should be our, our day to send stuff out. So we got more stuff coming out. It's going to be awesome. Got more guests, got more chit chats with Nipper and I. So Venom Exchange Radio, go find it, go look at it. Instagram, Google plus Apple podcast, Spotify, make it happen. It is very good. I'm very excited for more. Thank you. So, and the new Gecko podcast that you and Burke and yes, yes, boys. that's becoming difficult just because this time of the year and everyone's busy and work and viruses and oof, but it's coming. Oh, it's coming. Tantalizing your eardrums with Carphodactylidae for days. Everyone have a good evening. Good morning, good day, whenever you listen to this. If you hung out with us in the chat tonight, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. We'll be back for THP on Thursday. So, Bye. See you later.